This episode is brought to you by Shopify, one of my absolute favorite companies, and they make some of my favorite products. Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide, and I've known the team since 2008 or 2009. But prior to that, I wish I had personally had Shopify in the early 2000s when I was running my own e-commerce business. I tell that story in the 4-Hour Workweek, but the tools then were absolutely atrocious, and I could only dream of a platform like Shopify. In fact, it was you guys, my dear readers, who introduced me to Shopify when I polled all of you about best e-commerce platforms around 2009, and they've only become better and better since. Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or Getting ready for your IPO, Shopify is the only tool you need to start, run, and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. doesn't matter if you're selling satin sheets from Shopify's in-person POS system or offering organic olive oil on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform. However you interact with your customers, you're covered. And once you've reached your audience, Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States. And Shopify is truly a global force as the e-commerce solution behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across more than 170 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way if you have questions. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. So check it out. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify. That's S-H-O-P-I-F-Y, shopify.com slash Tim. Go to shopify.com slash Tim to take your business to the next level today. One more time, all lowercase, shopify.com slash Tim. This episode is brought to you by Cometeer. That's spelled C-O-M-E-T-E-E-R. Cometeer is hyper-fresh, expertly brewed, flash frozen coffee that produces an incredibly delicious cup. Now, I have to be honest, I was very skeptical of flash frozen coffee, and I thought, at face value, this is probably just a gimmick, yada, yada, yada. But as you know, I am an avid coffee drinker. I talk about caffeine and coffee a lot on this show. And when it landed on my doorstep, when I first started testing it, I thought to myself, this is actually incredible. It is locked in at peak freshness, and you can sample coffee from some of the top roasters, not just in the US, but around the world. And I went in with one eyebrow raised, and I'm sure some of you have one raised right now, but the coffee is absolutely delicious. It's pretty incredible. And I'm able to avoid bitterness completely. Cometeer lets you prepare your coffee with no mess, no machines, no burning, no bitterness whatsoever. It's a fast and foolproof way to a truly delicious cup of specialty coffee. They source high-quality beans from the country's top roasters and some outside of the country. That includes counterculture, bird rock, George Hell, equator coffees, which I used to have. I used to drive 45 minutes from my house in San Francisco to have Equator Coffee, just to give you an idea. And you can get it through Cometeer. Birch, Joe Coffee, Red Bay, Go Get Em Tiger, Clatch, Onyx, Square Mile, Black and White, Intelligentsia, which was in The 4-Hour Chef as an example in Chicago, and uh, on and on. So you can get all sorts of coffee you wouldn't otherwise be able to get because it is frozen using their process. Their coffee is brewed using proprietary technology to pull out more flavor compounds and antioxidants. Then it's flash frozen at minus 321 degrees Fahrenheit to lock in the incredible flavor and freshness 
of the specialty brew. I already mentioned this, but it's worth reiterating. Cometeer ships to you in 100% recyclable capsules that you store in the freezer. And if you were to walk into my kitchen right now and look in the freezer, it is chock full of Cometeer coffee. Simply add hot water and you've got a game-changing cup of coffee lickety-split. It's very fast. It's easily customizable in seconds for iced coffees, lattes, espresso martinis, and more. If you've never had an espresso martini, I recommend it. It's pretty game-changing. We'll cover that another time. Cometeer is also great to travel with when you need a cup and don't want to sacrifice quality. Their capsules are TSA approved. So order today at cometeer.com slash timtim and listeners of this podcast will receive $25 off of their first order. So visit cometeer.com slash timtim to learn more and get $25 off of your first order when you join the future of coffee with Cometeer. Optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I answer your personal question? Now it is in the perfect time. What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. Hello, boys and girls, ladies and germs. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, where it is my job to deconstruct world-class performers from all different disciplines to tease out their routines, habits, favorite books, lessons learned, mental frameworks, etc., and so on, and so on, and so forth, that you can apply to your own lives. This time around, we have a very special edition with two hit interviews from the podcast's back catalog. We're coming up very soon on the 10th anniversary of the podcast, and I wanted to experiment with a new format, and that is taking someone who is very much a household name, a superstar who is known to the masses, in this case, Jamie Foxx, and pairing that person with someone who is lesser known, but who I consider to be a superstar and who I would love to have a little more visibility. So it's a two for one. And uh, in this case, the names are Jamie Foxx and Maria Popova. Jamie Foxx, for those who may not know, you can find him on Twitter at I am Jamie Foxx, is an Academy Award winning actor, a Grammy Award winning musician, and a stand up and improv comedian. He is one of the most consummate performers and entertainers that I have ever met. Honestly, I would say that the two top are Jamie Foxx and Hugh Jackman, who've both been on the podcast. But Jamie blew my mind in this conversation. It was so much fun. It ended up being voted Podcast of the Year in 2015, back in the Pliocene era of podcasting, when celebrities appearing on podcasts were really few and far between. And we did this in his recording studio at his house. There's music, there's comedy, there's everything. The stories are amazing. And then we have Maria Popova, who you can find on Twitter at Brain Picker, who is the creator of The Marginalian. Long ago, this was named Brain Pickings, and it is included in the Library of Congress's permanent web archive of culturally valuable materials. It started off as a newsletter to a handful of friends, I think maybe six people, and now millions and millions and millions of people read her work constantly. The Marginalian is Maria's one-woman labor of love, an inquiry into how to live and what it means to lead a good life. She is unbelievably prolific. She reads so continuously. She writes so beautifully. She speaks multiple languages, and English is not her first language, which is always 
incredibly impressive to me because her writing is better than mine, which is not to say that I'm the best in the world, but her English is far more elegant, far more eloquent than mine. She is incredibly consistent. The Marginalian was created on October 26, 2006, and it has been running strong for 17 plus years. So I hope you enjoy this format. You can dip in, dip out. You have two people to choose from. My hope is that you will begin with the entertainment, the known name, and that will pull you in, in this case with Jamie Foxx, who better? And then you will continue and listen to someone you may not come across otherwise, and that is Maria Popova. I love both of these interviews, and I would love to know what you think of this format. So let me know on Twitter. It's going to be a while before I can bring myself to say X, as the cool kids might be saying, by tagging at T Ferris, at T F E R R I S S. Let me know what you think of this format. My goal, again, is to introduce people to interviews they might have missed over the years. They might miss forever if they weren't surfaced and brought to your attention. And you can think of this as my personal curated selection of, if not the best of the last 10 years of the podcast, at the very least, some of my own personal favorites. So I really hope you enjoy this and please do let me know what you think. Jamie, welcome to the show. Man, thanks, buddy. I'm so excited to be here. I'm I'm uh, admiring your setup here. This is crazy, the, right? This is where the magic happens. To be honest with you, a lot of magic happens here. I mean, for, for the people that are listening, uh, we are actually in my studio, uh, my home studio. Now, you know, studios, we're talking about tech world. Studios, because of the tech world, uh, a lot of them dissipated in closed doors. Because uh, if you think about when LMFAO came around, they didn't need studios. They did all of their music on a laptop, right? Flying from here to Germany or whatever like that, and just dumped it on to uh, and, and just pressed up the CD or the iTunes. So studios are almost becoming obsolete. But there's something very interesting about this studio. First, just for people that are listening, this studio, and I'll describe it. It's you know, it's sort of plush. The carpet is great. We're gonna sit next to a grand piano. Uh, we had a grand piano, which a lot of places. So we keep a grand piano around just to make sure that we don't lose, you know, we don't get too techy. But what's interesting about it is it's actually electric, but it's an electric grand piano. So we still have the wood to give you that warm sound, uh, which, you know, we, I think it makes a lot of sense because as music starts to progress, uh, because of the way we record now, sometimes you lose a little bit of the heart of it. So I think within the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years, it'll be, you know, this type of music, the real sound will, you know, remain. Right. If that makes sense. Now, the studio, when I first got the house, looked like a, a old porn set. <laughs> It had a, it had like an old basement carpet and a couch and like a Metallica, uh, Metallica uh, poster, and I was like, what would I do with this? Because I needed a place to to work and, and do music. What's interesting now, I, I got a guy to change the whole place over, and as you can see, we'll take pictures and show it for, for you for you guys that are listening. But they did a very good job in it. But if you look over here, this is where we do the recording. There's a, there's a booth, which is normal, but also the recording on both sides. We're able to do animation. We're able to do, uh, if we want to do ADR for movies, 
Um, what is ADR? ADR is like when you um, like when we're doing a movie, but we're recording the the, the movie outside. There's a lot of noise. Are oh, you doing pickup audio? So we will do pickup audio. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, and so and and most any actor or actress will tell you ADR is the worst thing in the world to do. So to be able to have here, have it here, I could do my ADR here. I could do my animation here and things like that. And so just the now the the studio itself. The actual brains of the studio, it's an old hard drive. And the reason I kept that old hard drive, I used to have a smaller studio in a smaller house. But when I had that small studio, I wasn't in music. I built the studio in my smaller house because I wanted to get in music. But I was from comedy and from acting and things like that. But what I would do is I would throw parties. And I would invite musical people over uh at the party like but and when they would come over like if i had puff or or snoop or back at that time john b or or brian mcknight i would say hey man you know i'm trying to get into music would you leave me some music in my studio so people leave me like 16 bars 24 bars because they would they would record something while they're in the studio they would record we'd have the party going i say hey man let's go in the back you know, while we're drinking and whatever like that and go and i say hey man just leave me a little something because i was trying to get into uh to music and then I met this kid uh, uh, named Breon Prescott. Basketball, we played basketball and all this kind of stuff. Pick up basketball games, and he said, "Hey man, why don't you ever do music?" I said, "Man, I'm trying to get into that shit, man. I just, you know, I don't know how to get into it." And then one day he, I throw this big party, and uh, it was a, uh, uh, the party was was crazy because as I di- digress a little bit, I would follow. Puffy Combs around back in the day when it was just like Puff and J-Lo and uh, and back at that time no one could get into his parties but the reason he would let me in because I would carry a camera with me everywhere I go but it was back in the day day like you know the big Canon cameras wait he would let you in because you carried a camera yeah because at that time I wasn't Jamie Foxx I was just Jamie Foxx <laughs> and uh, uh, so I couldn't get into all the parties because Puff was so big like he come to LA we couldn't even get in our own clubs Right. but I popped I, I, I took a town car everywhere he went jumped out of the town car one day and said yo Puff can I record now at that point he didn't know you at all he, he knew did. me he knew me the, the kid that was on the living color or whatever like right, that but right, right. it wasn't elevated right and plus he was having parties that were like huge like nobody's getting it and so they was he saw me with the camera he's like yo let him through and it was back in the day it was like the big canon camera with the light and i had to change the battery it wasn't like how today you just got your your, you phone, know, your, your phone in your pocket and your, no i had i had production <laughs> but uh i would follow him around and then one day we had this this party in philly that i, I recorded for him and he said yo your money you know how much this party costs what said it costs a million dollars for this party i said you paid a million dollars for a party he's like yeah that's how we i told Puff, i challenged him i said i'll throw you a party at my house in L.A., which is way smaller than this situation, but I'll spend maybe $400, and it will rival this party. Not in the scale of it, but in the type of people that are there. And he was he was a little upset. You know, Puff is a, you know, he he always likes to win. He's a competitive you know, guy. He's a competitive guy. He said, yo, play, play, you, you must out your motherfucking mind, playboy. You better understand the essence of this party. I was like, all right, I, I get it. <laughs> and uh, he actually came to uh, L.A. a few weeks later. And it was a Saturday. He said, yo, Playboy, make that shit happen. So he calls me like nine in the morning, right? For that night? For, no, in the morning. For, he just right. said, for the same for the day. day. For the day. <laughs> I said, no problem. So I go into my cell phones, call. I have a, I have a list of people uh, that since I first came to L.A., the way I got into uh, um, um, knowing everybody. I was, the first, I was the first social media guy without social media. I would go do a stand-up comedy routine at a club 
if they liked the routine, I had cue cards back in the day and would have people sign cue cards, sign their name. Did you like the set? Give me your pager number. I will text you and let you know where I would be you were from time to time. Yeah, I wish so they were like index cards. So index cards. So yeah. a box. And I had these. You gotta get rid of this fly, man. <laughs> Stop it for a second. <laughs> Uh, all right, so we're picking back up. I just have to. We took a fly break. Yeah, so it was a I just fly have to, assault. I just, have, I just have to admire this because the studio is, what would you say, maybe like 30, 30 by 15 feet on the floor and then another 15 feet tall. And you said, I'm going to stop and get this fly. Yeah, I saw the fly. fly assaulted my man. This is a lot of space. So, yeah. And it took you about seven seconds to track yeah, this fly down and we, kill it. I was very impressed. We got to get shit done in here. We don't have time. <laughs> So, so the cue cards. So, so what? So I would get cue cards, and and, and you know, like I said, I would send it. You know, I had a list of about eight hundred people. I had six hundred women because women at that time, this is like around ninety ninety one. Women at that time loved to go to comedy clubs. So it was all the pretty girls because pretty girls like to laugh. You know, and, and about eight nine girls together. And Jamie, you're so crazy, so funny, whatever. <laughs> and so uh, I had eight hundred signatures, two hundred guys because they wanted to be where the girls were. So I would take that list and also. Say, okay, well, now I'm having a party here, 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 whatever, whatever, if you want to come by. So that same list, along with the other people that I met as I as I started to grow in the business, I text and said, I'm throwing a party for Puff. And this one, Puff had... We ain't going nowhere was out. And it was bla- it was popping. I mean, even the L.A. dudes was like, man, we don't want to fuck with this New York dude, but this shit is so, the song is so hot. So I text, I said, listen, I'm, I'm Puff is coming. And the people that I text were only cool people. Like no guys that'll be hating. You know, uh, girls are pretty, uh, uh, not slutty, but not, not too tight. Right. You know what I mean? The Goldilocks. It, it was just, it was just really, it was, um, it was, um, it was, um, um. and so I hit him at 12 noon. I said, yo, where are you at? We're at a fevered pitch. It's going off over here in my little house. And when he gets there, his mind is blown. And, you know, he shows up with the entourage. That, you know, he, he was like, Gatsby. Okay. And he walked in. He says, oh, that's the girl from that show. And that's the girl on this. And I, I said, yeah, Puff, we, we all live out here. You know, so all the people you see in Hollywood, I, I know they're my friends. And so he's like, oh, shit. So the party's incredible. We're playing his music through my little sound speakers. Everybody's really toasting him. And I said, Puff, the people that are here are different in this. Oh, what the fuck? It's another fly. Hold on, stay right there. Good night. <laughs> two for two. Two for two. <laughs> so, 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 so he's he's admiring that that it's it's crazy, and um and and everybody's in tune with him. And I explained to him. I said, Puff, let me explain to you who you are. I said, these are the people who not only live in L.A. but I think I've found the right set of people who appreciate the art as well because what you do musically and what you're doing on the artistic side is blowing our minds as well and i said therefore look at the table i only spent four hundred dollars on the table there's kentucky fried chicken i just put it in a nice bowl uh there's cola i just put them in pitchers i said so no more than four hundred dollars but people are here i said because here's the thing a fitted baseball cap new york Fit it. It's $58 maybe retail. I said, but puff on your hat, on your head, it's priceless. We just want to be around this fly shit, right? So we party and puff is partying. And there's the dude standing uh, next, uh, like on the wall. No one's talking to. He got a little green jump jacket on. Guess who it was? It was Jay-Z. 
Nobody knew who he was. <laughs> Jay-Z, can, I said, yeah, I know that dude. Uh, Missy Elliott has one room. Puff has the other room. Then I go to my garage to grab some other drinks, and I see this tall dude and this little dude, and, and, and they're like, the little guy goes, yo, B, it's like this all the time. I said, yeah, what you mean? You know, the girls and, and karaoke. And I said, yeah, yeah, man, who are you? Oh, we're the Neptunes. My name is Pharrell. I said, yeah, man, I heard of you. Yeah, man, I like your shit. So that's how long ago this was. Amazing. So here's how I make the music play, though. So as Puff is there, I get people to leave me different bits of music or whatever because like, I'm trying to get into the music thing. So I turned that into a show, in a sense, to where I would just have different people I would toast and try to, you know, get my music on. So one day, my boy Breon brings in this kid. He has a backpack on. His jaw's a little busted. His name is Kanye West. And I say, yo, yo, who's, who's that? I said, yo, that's a new kid, Kanye West. He coming on. I said, really? What'd he do? So he rap. I said, well, shit, he got to perform that shit because everybody that comes to, this, to my house, they got to perform. So I said, yo, man, they say you the shit. And he was really quiet, you know. I said, man, let me hear you rap. You need your beats or whatever? He said, I don't need no beat. Freestyle. Blew every, I mean, chopped everybody's heads up. Just amazing. I said, dude, I don't know where you come from, but you are going to be one of the biggest stars ever. And he said, I actually have a song for you. I said, moi? <laughs> me, a song? Like, what you mean? He said, I got this song. He says, I want to record it. I said, well, you happen to be in luck because I got a studio in the back. So we go in the back. And my studio at that time, I called it the Porsche. It was a lot smaller than this. It was really like nippy. It was like a... Uh, it was like a Learjet. It was compact. It was compact. The sound was toasty. I had uh, engineers from all over the, the, the city dial it in so that when real artists come, they don't think that, oh, this is just comedian fucking around. Some real shit. So we go in and, 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 and uh, Kanye, you know, quiet, but, but at the same time, he knew what he wanted. He says, okay, the song goes like this. She says she wants some Marvin Gaye, some Luther Vandross, a little... I said, I got it. And I started going, she says she wants some Marvin Gaye. And he said, what the fuck are you doing? I said, well, see, young man, you don't know nothing about R&B. See, I'm an R&B motherfucker. See, I, I got to give him the shit. You know, I got to put the shit on it. And he goes really politely. He says, hits the, the button. He says, uh, don't do that. <laughs> I said, but you don't know what you're talking about, brother. Uh, that ain't how the song go. You got to sing it this way. So in my mind, I'm thinking, you know what? I'm going to sing the shit. The song is whack. It's not going to make it. Because I'm thinking old school R&B. But he was teaching me the simplicity of hip hop, which I didn't know. I was like, what? cool guy, great rapper. I don't think it's going to happen for him. So I'll go off and do a bad movie. And when I come back, my boy says, remember that song you said was whack? I said, yes, yeah, number one. <laughs> in the country, you, Kanye, and Twister, Kanye's first record, and it was actually Twister's record. I said, oh, shit. So I'm at a club. He said, you don't believe me? I said, no, I'm, we're in Miami. He, they played it. Everybody ran to the dance floor. I grabbed the mic, said, that's me. That's, that's, that's my song. I'm, I'm on that, you know. And so the music, that's how I got into the music. Now, the reason the story is significant is because the same brains that we use, that same hard drive, that we use, I brought it to this studio. Oh, no. So that hard drive is, is magical because we also did, just to give you a history on the, on the music, Breon found that song, Slow Jams. It went number one. And then as we started getting into music, there was a song that Breon brought in and he would play these, Breon would call me. Like he said, you want to be in the music business? It's like, you know, two or three in the morning. He called me, says, you want to be in the music business? I said, yeah. He said, then wake your ass up. 
I said, what? He said, I got this song you got to hear. So I drove all the way from my house in the valley to this, to this, uh, to this, to this little studio. He says, so you ready, motherfucker? Are you ready? And Breon always says everything three times. Are you ready, motherfucker? Are you ready? Are you ready? I said, yeah, yeah, man, play the shit. So he plays it. And the song was, blame it on the goose. Got you feeling loose. Blame it on the, I, 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 I stopped it. I said, listen. First of all, please tell me that's my song. He said, yeah, it's your song, but you got to record it right now because a lot of people are listening to this song and they don't know if it's a hit or not. He said, but I know it's a hit. We did Blame It on the Alcohol. That night, I sung it exactly like the record, which goes way in contrast to my R&B roots because it was auto-tune and everything like that. But we wanted to sing it exactly like the demo so we wouldn't lose the essence of it. I don't want to be like, blame it on the alcohol, you know, some corny shit. (laughs) So we did that. And then we went from every, the way we broke that record is that we went from every club. We went to the strip clubs first. Went to the strip clubs? Strip club. We went, on, we, went, we did an East Coast run. So we were going to break the record in the East Coast. So we went to the strip. We went to New York. Uh, my man Pekas took us around. Uh, and I would go into the club and use my comedic, you know, vernacular to get the song off. I said, fellas, you ever been... Uh, at the club, you meet a girl, you've been drinking, you think she looked like Halle Berry, you get her back home, she looks like Halle Scary, you know what you got to do? Blame it on the goose, God's feeling loose, blame it on the ah, 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 stop the record. Ladies, you ever meet a guy, you get back to the house with him and you've been drinking too much and you say, I usually don't do this, but you do it anyway, you got to blame it on the ah, 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 ah. <laughs> So we took that and we went all the way down from New York all the way down to Miami. This is like 2008. And then the song took off. and so. Long story longer, Blame It On Alcohol was done here. Slow Jams was done here. So this studio has that that essence to it that you just, you don't throw that away. And just the building itself, Natasha Bedingfield's been here. She's cut. Kelly Rowland's been here. She's cut. The Game has been here. He's cut right here on this floor. And I'm sure uh, for you guys listening, I'm pointing to the floor, to the carpet. A young man by the name of Ed Sharing slept on this carpet for like six weeks uh, trying to get his music career going. Uh, he came from over from London. He heard about a, a live show that I do in L.A. So I really want to uh, do your live show if it's possible, uh, you know, because I have some music that I love. I hear this kid with this red hair. I'm like, man, you do my live show? And it's all bl- it's mostly black, you know what I'm saying? But it's really like music people, like really hardcore music people. They're very finicky. You know, people that have played for Stevie Wonder, people will come there to, I mean, I had Miranda Lambert one night. I had Stevie Wonder on stage. I had Babyface. I said, so this is the real shit you're talking about. You know, you come here. I don't care about the London and the accent. <laughs> you got to really come with it. So I, I think I'll be okay. I said, all right. So I take it to my live night, 800 people there. People playing. Black folks sweating and just getting it. You know what I'm saying? I mean, people singing and, you know, they would, they would tear American Idol up, you know? So, and these people don't necessarily, hasn't, haven't necessarily made it. So all of a sudden, Ed Sheeran gets up with a ukulele, <laughs> walks by, out onto the stage. <laughs> and the brother that was next to me was like, yo, Fox, man, who the fuck is this dude right here, man, with the red hair and shit and the fucking ukulele? I said, man, his name is Ed Sheeran. Let's see what he does. Within 12 minutes, he got a standing ovation. Wow. From that crowd. And I said, bro, you're on your way. So this studio has, a, a, like I said, a lot of history, and it has that magic to it as well. The mojo. Yeah. Now, you, uh, you mentioned getting into music, but it seems like, from what I've read of you, that music in some ways came first. Music did. 
music did my when I was a kid, my grandmother uh, made sure that I took piano lessons. And you know, that's tough for a little boy in Texas. You know, playing Furry Lease and Chopin and Mozart. And we're not talking about Houston or No, we're talking Terrell, Texas. And I love my city. My city was dope because it was only 12,000 people. So it was like literally like 12 or 15 families. So we all knew each other. But, you know, for a little boy playing at that time, you know, the kids didn't understand. Yo, man, why are you doing that? And my, my grandma want me to do this, you know. And so I would sometimes I would be belligerent and be like, why do you want me to do this? She says, the reason I want you to learn classical piano is because I want you to be able to go across the tracks and play your music. For people listening, across the tracks or on the other side of the tracks for a southern city was the tracks in a southern city separates the city. One side is black, the other side is white. So in our city, the south side, the south side of town was where all the black folk live. The north side of town was where the white folks live. So she says, I want you to be able to go on the white side of town and play classical music. So she taught me how to play classical piano um, a lady by the name of Lenita Hodge taught me how to play classical piano. And I literally would go on the other side of the tracks and, you know, and, and start playing for like wine and cheese parties and things like that. But my grandmother took it a step further, too, because she was able to see the future. Uh, here's a lady with an eighth grade education. She had her own business for 30 years. She had her own uh, nursery school business. She says, when I say across the tracks, I don't just mean in Terrell and those people over there. I mean the metaphoric. Like across the track, like meaning everywhere in the world. So you, she said, because music connects you to the to to the whole world. So in doing that, I would connect with people on the other side of the tracks. Who, you know, in a southern city, and Terry, you know, we were a little we were a little behind the curve when it came to race relations. Let's just say it that way. Without you know, I don't want to demonize my 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 hometown, but there was there was that who's a little black kid. And my grandmother would be like, don't, you know, play. Do your thing. And when I would play, you know, a lot of that broke up, broke up, you know, broke up. I remember even, like, being armed with just my music in sort of that racial setting and some, sometimes. Like, there was a, a time when there was a Christmas party. Were these paid gigs? Yeah, these? I make like, man, I get like $10, 15 You know what I'm saying? At that time, it was like, my, and I played for the church. So playing for the church, I would make like uh, $75 a week. So if you count that up, that's like 300 a month, you know. Real money. That's real money at 13, 14. My grandmother would take the money, though, and put it, you know, and give me this money. So, Grandma, what are you doing with money? Shit, you ain't, getting, you ain't paying no rent. You ain't going to give me this money. <laughs> so, but I remember at that time being armed with just my music, and uh, there was a Christmas party that I was supposed to play for. Myself and my best friend, who was 17. I was 16 at the time. And so here was a little bit of the, the racial misunderstanding, shall we say. I went to play for the guys Christmas time. Maybe it's like December 17th. And we show up. It's two little black kids on the white side of town. And uh, when he opens his door and he sees these two little black kids, uh, he says, what's going on here? I said, well, I'm, I'm here to play uh, for your Christmas party. Sir. Then why are two of you here at the same time? I said, well, <clears throat> I don't have a license. He, you know, he drove me. Uh, is there a problem? Yeah, there's a problem. I can't have two niggers in my house at the same time. And I was like, ah, well, you know, and I've been sort of used to the racial misunderstandings. And I said, well, is there any way he could wait outside or wait? And he can't wait on the street. It starts at 630. Now, you got to make, make your mind up now. So I, I said, I told my boy, I said, let's just come get me at 830, which was pretty late, you know, for kids at that time, you know. Uh, so I go in. He says, where's your tuxedo? I said, well, he didn't tell me to have a tuxedo. 
So we go into this room, which looks like a bedroom. And I'm looking like, why the fuck does he have clothes hanging up in his bedroom? But it was a walk-in closet. I never <laughs> seen no shit like that. I'm like, oh, man, we make a split-level condo out of this shit. So he gives me a Brooks Brothers jacket that had the patches on the elbows. I'm like, oh, shit, highfalutin. So now I'm really playing. You know what I'm getting? But as I'm playing, uh, they were doing, uh, the grown-ups there were doing uh, racially misunderstanding jokes. I'll say it like that. <laughs> and my grandmother taught me something. At that time, she said, uh, when you're in a setting like that, uh, there's a word I want you to remember. It's called furniture. I said, what's that? She said, you're part of the furniture. So you don't comment on what's being said. You play. That's what you're there for. And you let these people enjoy their. And the lady of the house felt bad. She said, I just want to apologize to you for what they're saying. I said, no, no problem. She said, can you sing something for us? And I was like, sure. I could sing something for us. And this was the song that I sung. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Jack Frost nipping at your nose. Yuletide carols being sung by a choir. And folks dressed up like Eskimos. Everybody. Anyway, so as I'm singing, I remember watching those white guys, old men, some of them faculty at my school that had just said something, you know, probably not. I don't think it was that they meant harm, harm, but it was. They'd have to, they'd have to resign today. Yeah. And they look and they go, they, they immediately change. It's wow, man, that's good. You know, any other songs? And I sat and I did about maybe like a six song set. And I saw what my grandmother talked about. That music cracked them in half. They saw a different me. And then afterwards he gave me a hundred bucks. And I'm like, shit, call me nigga every day. I got a hundred dollars. I'm rich. And what was interesting was I went to give him the jacket back. He's like, no, I don't, I can't wear the jacket. So it was still a little bit of residue left over. But I saw what the music did. And I remember when my, when my boy showed back up, I said, listen, it was a cool gig. We got paid. I said, but I got to get out of here. I said, because I'm too smart for this. Uh, I need to go elsewhere. And I did. I changed my major. Well, I changed the college that I was going to go to. I was going to go to another college in Texas and study music. Instead, I came to California, San Diego, to study music uh, at International University. And what was interesting about that was is that being in Texas, it was black, whites, and Mexicans. When I got to International University, it was 81 different countries represented at that school, all connected by music and other things, music and sports. Uh, and the music the music arena at that time was high-end, strict child prodigies from Japan, child prodigies from China. I had a Russian uh, uh, music teacher, and I had a Yugoslavian music theory teacher. So it was, it was really across the tracks. But uh, because of that, because of Estelle Talley and Mark Talley, you know, picking me up every uh, weekend to go play music, um, man, I was, it, it set me on a, like I said, a, a crazy, wonderful journey. And uh, uh, so the music was first, you know, and um, my college was interesting. I didn't know anything about Jewish, Palestinian. I had no idea. 
I, I was at the student center and there was this argument going on. You know, I said, what, what, are they, what are they arguing about? Oh, my brother, my brother, my friend. They're talking about the Gaza Strip. I said, the fuck is that? <laughs> and they said, no, the Jewish, the occupation, the this, the that. And I had, a, I, I got a quick, I got a quick uh, history lesson on on that. I got a quick history lesson on people from Argentina. Or I would see a person who looked black, and I'd be like, "Hey, what's up, brother? Uh, bonjour." Blah, 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 blah. And I'd be like, "Oh shit, where are you from?" Yeah. Oh, so I'm from Paris. I was like, what "The fuck? They got black people." So <laughs> that music gave me not only an opportunity to share, but opportunity to be educated about other people because we study Texas history, and in studying Texas history is interesting. Like if you study Texas history, if it didn't happen in Texas. It didn't happen. <laughs> so when you look at like like this is just a sidebar, but when you think about politics and what people know and don't know in politics and what they know about across the sea or what they know about even on the next block or what they know about what's different in Texas from New York, the reason that politics is so interesting is because the people don't necessarily have educations of other people, which is why I think that once we start opening up a little more and traveling a little more because what is it less than how many percent less or well, less than five percent of americans have passports and things it's like a small that. number yeah so so anyway that music like i said took me took me everywhere just a quick thanks to one of our sponsors and we'll be right back to the show This episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Marketing Solutions. If you are a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique and your solutions should be unique as well. B2B buying cycles are long and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. It's time that you had a marketing platform built specifically for you. LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions for both you and your customers. LinkedIn Ads allows you to build the right relationships, drive results, and reach your customers exactly where they are already. You'll have direct access to and can build relationships with decision makers, 1 billion members, 180 million senior level executives, and 10 million C-level executives. With LinkedIn Ads, you have access to targeting and measurement tools built specifically for B2B. In the technology sector, LinkedIn generated a 2 to 5x higher return on ad spend than other social media platforms based on an assessment by analytic partners. 79% of B2B content marketers said LinkedIn produces the best results for paid media. So make B2B marketing everything it can be and get a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash TFS to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash TFS. Terms and conditions apply. What other your your grandmother seems like a very wise woman, and uh, I've heard you describe her, and I might be par- I'm sure I'm paraphrasing this, but that she she was the bow or had the bow and you oh, were yeah. the arrow, and she yeah. pointed you in different directions. I'm wondering what other like you are the furniture, right? I mean, when to speak, when not to speak. What other lessons did you learn from your grandmother? My grandmother taught me confidence as well. My grandmother was a very confident person and uh, very smart. Just, how would you say, just naturally intelligent. She was a a, 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 a Taurus. You know what I'm saying? Natural. It's like it wasn't something that was super educated or anything like, like that. An, but she just had a na- I, I'll give you. I'll give you. I'll give you a, a a hint of my grandmother. I'm 10 years old, maybe. I think I'm in the fifth grade. 76. President Carter. The preacher started preaching about homosexuality. Now, I don't know what it is. I'm, you know, 10 or 8 or whatever. 
So he's saying God made Adam and Eve. God didn't make Adam and Steve. Right? <laughs> so people like, you know, it's Southern. It's Texas. Amen. My grandmother stood up and said, you stop that. And the whole church stopped. What's that, Miss Taylor? You stopped that. Now, her words, what she said next was very interesting. Let me tell you something. I've had this nursery school for 30 years. And I want to let all y'all know that God makes sissies too. And the whole place went, what? She said, these little boys that I've watched since they could walk. They, they, play by, they play by different music. And you stop that because you're making it hard for them to navigate. Sits down. He goes to another subject. Eventually, he leaves the church. But I found that very interesting. At that time, I didn't know what that meant until I got to be about 18. I was like, what, you know, what was you talking about? She says, yeah, it's true. She says, you know, I've had this nursery school. I, I see the difference in the kids. And so, therefore, I would have these kids come to me after they graduated from high school, gone to college, or tried to have a family, although they had they were living with this. So she was a type of woman who had natural intelligence. I said, well, Granny, well, what does it say about religion? Doesn't it say that it's that it's wrong? You know, being a you know kid from Texas, it's natural question. She says, you know, when I think about it, she said, you have to open up the umbrella of religion. I said, what do you mean? She said, if you only open up the umbrella halfway, only a few people can stand under it. She said, you have to open the umbrella all the way through so God's children can stand on it because no one here did not get made by anybody else or anything else but God. So that was my grandmother, you know. It seems very, uh, the, the move in church, man, it's a very bold move, very courageous very move. Very bold, very bold. But my grandmother raised those people in church. See, I was adopted, you know, at seven months, so she was much older. So all of the kids that were there, were the, and it was, like I said, it was only a few families that lived in Terrell. So all of the kids that grew up, or all of the grown-ups that were there, she... She was the matriarch. She, she, because during, during the year, it was a school. You know what I'm saying? But then during the summer, you drop your kids off at my, at my grandmother's house and just let them keep them. So she was very uh, powerful in that sense. And then when I did finally make it, it was wonderful to tell my grandmother, come live with me. So my grandmother was living with me. So we go to the clubs. You know, my grandmother was like, she had to be 83 at the time. She would go to the clubs, we hang out. You know what I'm saying? She this did, is in L.A. This is in L.A. Uh, I had a little apartment, split-level condo. Remember when that was hype? The split-level condo. So I had a loft. Oh, yeah, Ricardo, he's only 19. He doesn't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but I had a loft, and we were living in that loft, and then we eventually rented a house. And me and my grandma, and I didn't know I was a mama's boy. Like, we go to the parties, come back, we have an after party at the crib, and then one of my homies came and said, yo, uh, yo, Fox, uh, it's an older lady out here uh, in the in the front room. I said, yeah, that's my grandmother. What's up? Oh, uh, yeah, it's cool. I said, yeah. And then you hear a bottle of champagne pop. What we doing? <laughs> we getting it or what? You know, so uh, <laughs> she was uh, she was amazing, man. And so, you know, my grandmother, you know, we party, hang, have a good time. She was 83 years old. And then it, the big thing was, it's like, Granny, you know, it's Christmas time. Why don't we do something we ain't never done? You know, you, you, your son making a little money. Why don't we go to Hawaii for Christmas? Because I got some friends from Hawaii. Well, what? yeah, well, let's get it going. Gas up the plane, right? So we uh, fly to Hawaii one year, and I, it was just amazing to be able to show my grandmother another side of the world. It even made the papers in Terrell, Texas. Estelle Talley, uh on her way to Hawaii, you know. 
And I remember, and you know, just a fun, just a fun time. I remember um, we're having a good time. We're going everywhere. And she had a boyfriend at the same time. It was 83 too. And he was on the, you know, he was on the land side. And so, so it was like December 23rd. And we, uh, we called her boyfriend just so they could talk. So she's on the phone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Having a good time. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah. Weather's nice. Mm-hmm. Sunny. Oh, food is good. I got my own seasonings though. Mm-hmm. Real nice. Well, I tell you what, look, I'm going to go, but let me tell you something. Don't let me come back there and, uh, catch you with no young girls. You understand? Cause I don't play that. Don't let me catch you with no young girls. You hear me? <laughs> so she hangs up, you know, it's like three or four families there. We're having like a little Christmas party and we all go, granny, what? When you said the young girls, what are you talking about? You know, 60, 65. I don't want to mess with no 65. She says, shit, I'm 83. You know, so I can't handle no 65 year old woman all in my shit. So she was just a great person, tough girl. Uh, I remember there was some situations where I did make it and some people in my family felt like I should give them all of, the, all of my money. Mm. This lady walks in and we're in my apartment. She comes in and says, my rich cousin. I didn't even recognize because I, you know, I hadn't, I only seen him maybe once or twice growing up. So anyway, it gets around to it. She says, I need $10,000 for a kidney. I was like, oh, who's kidney? Well, I need kidney surgery or something like that. So if you give me the cash, I could take it and get the, I said, well, why don't you, if it's a situation of medical, I, I know some doctors, maybe they can help you. Oh, I would prefer the $10,000. <laughs> I said, well, you okay, I'll hit you. And I didn't call back. I was like, so that became a problem for her. And she called me one day and left on the answer machine. Young fella, the last time you seen an answer machine. So I'm checking my answer machine and she leaves a scathing message. Well, you know what? I didn't get the money from you. And that's fine because you're not part of this family anyway. You was adopted. Nobody wanted you anyway. This is what this lady is saying to me. Brutal. I was like, what the hell? So I let my grandmother hear, let me run that back. Played it. Mm-hmm. What's that number? And she called, and I I remember listening. Now I'm grown. You know I'm I'm 22, so I'm grown, and I hear how she stuck up for me. She said, "Let me explain something to you, boy." And I could hear. I got the boy when he was seven months old. I said, and everybody wanted him. I wanted him. Uh, everybody, you know. I said, and he may not be blood, but he's our family. And just it was just incredible. Incredible thing. My grandmother was absolutely amazing. I think you need people like that. And when you talk about that bow, that's what that's my reference to to raising kids. And I got my own kids now. Is that when you raise your kids, you are the bow and arrow. You're the bow. They're the arrow. And you just try to aim them in the best direction that you can. And hopefully uh, your aim isn't too off. And uh, that's what she did for me. And then, uh, you know, she watched my whole career uh, all the way up until getting nominated for an Oscar where all of the things that she taught me came into play. When we did uh, uh, Ray Charles, that was an opportunity to play the piano, to be funny, to do an impersonation. And all these things is what my grandmother championed. So when we, when we embarked upon that film, I was like, oh man, granny was right. This is taking me on the other side of the tracks. And when we got in, even when I got a chance to meet Ray Charles, which, you know, that's my grandmother's era, you know? Uh, and she didn't get a chance to meet him because at the time she was, you know, she couldn't move bedridden a little bit. But uh, being around older people, 
You know, I understood that muscle too because I was always the young kid with the old parents. So meeting Ray Charles was like seeing my grandfather or seeing one of my uncles. And when I met Ray and we were trying to do Ray Charles the movie and Taylor Hackford, who was the director, and he said, you know, I've I've been wanting to do this movie for 25 years. I'm glad you came along because it's the right time. And I remember meeting Ray Charles, walking down his studio, you know, clean, you know, looked like almost like he could see, you know. And I said, Mr. Charles, you know, just trying to do the best I can to, you know, to do, uh, to do your m- movie, your biop. He said, hey, you know what? Uh, it, look, it, it, if you could play the blues, man, shit, you could do anything, man. I said, what do you mean? He said, hey, can you play the blues? Shit, that's what I'm asking. I said, well, I guess so. Then come on. And we go and we sit down. And all of the hard work that my grandmother put in, all of the days my grandfather drove me to, piano lessons. Here I am sitting with a legend and we were like and I was like playing the blues with Ray Charles and as we're playing I'm like I'm on cloud nine then he moved into the, some intricate stuff like Thelonious Monk and I was like oh shit I gotta catch up and I hit a wrong note and he stopped because his ears are very sensitive. Hey, now, now, why the hell would you do that? I said, what is that? Hey, why you hit the note like that? That's a wrong note, man. Shit. I said, well, I, I, I'm sorry, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Charles. I just said, he said, hey, let, me, hey, let me tell you something, buddy. The notes are right underneath your fingers, baby. You just got to take the time out to play the right notes. That's life. So that was a lesson. That the notes are right underneath your fingers. So metaphorically. So now you got to cross the tracks. There's someone like Estelle Talley teaches you. Then you got Ray Charles explaining, now that you're across the tracks, what notes are you going to play? And so now we go on and we, 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 we do that movie, which we didn't know what we were doing. We didn't know that it was going to be like that. It wasn't a studio film. Uh, it was independent. And, uh, you know, doing the, doing the process of the movie was interesting of my you know background being from Terrell, knowing how to mimic but i needed to know how to do ray do ray charles like the young ray charles so i got in touch with uh, Quincy Jones and for all of you young ones out there uh listening make sure you google Chris, Quincy Jones and Ray Charles and the reason why you should do that is because they were the building blocks of our music today which started in Seattle Washington which was interesting Seattle at that time was was a big hub for jazz music jazz musicians and that's where Ray Charles migrated to running into a young Quincy Jones. Ray Charles actually taught Quincy Jones everything he knows about music. Who is Quincy Jones for you young ones listening? Quincy Jones was the one who did, I mean, he played, he was a band director for Frank Sinatra. All of those guys, the Rat Pack, all of those guys, he was the band leader. Uh, if you, and then when I met Quincy Jones, he talks about that. Yeah, man, shit, man, music, man. These young cats don't know music anymore, man. Shit, they wouldn't. They play in the key of Q if they would, man. Shit, man. When I played Baby Frankie, baby, I said, Mister Jones, who's Frankie? Man, shit, Frank Sinatra, man. Shit, I was young, man. The band we were playing in Monaco, man. We didn't even have time to rehearse, baby. We we're just there playing, waiting on fucking Frank to come in. I said, What do you mean? He says we we had to play this show in Monaco. Frank had never met me, knew that I was this young kid, 
who was great with the music. I become the band leader. We don't get a chance to rehearse. Monaco, where it's billionaires and millionaires in the audience waiting on this incredible show. And he says, we're just vamping, man. Shit. And Frank doesn't even come out on the stage. He comes through the audience, man. Shit. Talking and shit. I'm like, man, I'm nervous as hell. And then Frank got up. He said he sung. The band was tight. And Frank Sinatra knighted him, like gave him a ring that was like, you know, pretty significant, if you know what I mean. And if you guys uh, Google Frank Sinatra, you'll understand what I mean about the Lucoso Nostra. And uh, uh, so here I am now talking to Quincy Jones and he's telling me about Ray Charles. He says, yeah, man, Ray taught me everything, man. Shit, man, he taught me how to dress. We were wearing suits, suits, zoot suits and shit, man. He had nice suits, tailor-made. And I said, why did he have nice suits? Shit, man, he was always around women, man. And women would tell him, man, those zoot suits are ugly because he couldn't see. So the women was telling him how to, how to dress. And I said, well, Mr. Jones, I'm trying to figure out how to do Ray Charles, but I need the young Ray Charles, right? And he says, well, man, shit, let me look. And he gives me a cassette tape. To you young ones out there, a cassette tape back in the day was a way for us to, I'm just messing with her, to, uh, to share music. And I said, okay, I got the cassette tape. I had to go rent a truck from, rent a, from a Hertz rent a car because there was no cassette players in the cars. So I popped the cassette tape in and uh, uh, on the tape was, hi, this is Donna Shore from the Donna Shore Show. We have two very wonderful musicians here today and Mr. Kenny Rogers. And Mr. Ray Charles. And you hear the young Ray. Hey, you know what, Don? I'm just so happy to be here. Uh, so happy to hear, uh, that you know my music. I mean, this is just grand. And it was the young Ray. Like, you know, uh, because when I was talking to the older Ray, I didn't want to grab those bad old habits. I want to play him young. So I hear Ray talking young on the tape. And then all of a sudden, he's in charge of the uh, of the interview. And this is, you know, he was just doing his thing. And then all of a sudden, she says, talk about the drugs, Ray. And then he started to stutter. Hey, well, you know what? I, so I used that as DNA to play the iconic character, Ray Charles, that when he's talking about his music, he's fully in control. When he's confronted with real life things, why are you doing drugs? Why don't you take care of your family? Why are you cheating on your wife? He would stutter. And I say this long story to say this. After the success of Ray Charles, after being nominated for uh, an Oscar, uh, my grandmother got a chance to witness all of that. She got a chance to see the bearing of the fruits of, you know, of, of her labor for her young kid coming from that racially misunderstood town, which I love and wouldn't change anything in the world when it comes to Terrell, Texas. Her saying, get across the tracks. We've now gone across the tracks. We've gone all over the world. And then here we are. And think about, think about what's the, what's the odds of a kid who lives in a town, population 12,240 people, from Terrell to go all the way to Los Angeles, California, meet Puff, meet all these different people, and then actually have an opportunity to win an Oscar. And your grandmother gets a chance to see that. Now, October 23rd, 2004, she passed away. Which, if you know, the actual awards was uh, 2005 uh, in February. But she got a chance to hang in there and, and you know, and feel it, you know. So uh, it's, uh, uh, it, it, you know, my grandmother was just like, you know, the, the blueprint. 
How do you think of teaching confidence with your own kids? Because you're, you're clearly a very confident guy. Yeah. Uh, grandmother was very bold, very strong woman. How do you try to teach that to your kids? Well, what you do with your kids is like when, when my daughter is I there's a, the phrase that when you see Annalise, I, my, my, my daughter, and my oldest daughter, Corinne, I would always ask them, what's on the other side of fear? And they'd be like, huh? I said, what's on the other side of it? Meaning like if I stood in the middle of this floor right there and just yelled, ah, what's on the other side of that? Or if I stood on the, in the middle of the floor and went, ah, what's on the other side of it? Meaning like either you do or you don't, but there's no penalty. There's no reward. It's just, you just be yourself. So I taught them what's on the other side of fear. Nothing. People are nervous for no reason because there's nothing. No one's going to come out and slap you or beat you up. And then you're just nervous. So why even have that? And so that's a building block that they can use, not just about the entertainment business, because that's the other thing. You don't have to be an entertainer, but whatever you go into, whether you be a lawyer or school teacher or tech guy or whatever, or girl, whatever it is, there's nothing on the other side of it. What's on the other side of fear? Nothing. I like it. So it's like, so why are you, why, when people say, oh, I'm so nervous, what are you nervous about? <laughs> Reminds me of this quote that I, I, sort of recite to myself and I'm going to paraphrase it because I have it written down, but it's from Mark Twain. It says, uh, I'm an old man who's known a great many troubles, most of which never happened. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> because all of it is in our head. Yeah. When we talk about fear or lack of uh, being aggressive or well, it's, just, it's, 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 it's in your head. So not everybody's going to be super aggressive, but the one thing that you can deal with is a, a person's fears. So if you start early, if they are a shy person, they just won't be as shy if you keep instilling those things. So, the mimicry, the impersonation. Yeah. How early did that start? Because I read, as a kid. and and maybe you can tell me if this is off or not, because you never know with the internet. Uh, that your second grade teacher yeah. used to reward the class if they behaved by letting you tell jokes. Yeah, they would let they would let me tell jokes because I would get in trouble. Miss Reeves, my I think it was my third grade teacher, Miss Reeves. Because I would like talk, but I was very smart. My grandmother had a school. I, was, I lived in a school. So I, I already knew the, 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 from like first to eighth grade, I already knew all of the lesson plan. So, you know, a kid like me sitting there with nothing to do, I'm going to get in trouble. <laughs> so she would uh, let me do stand-up comedy on Fridays for the kids. And all I would do is my grandmother would watch Johnny Carson. And the only room that had the television was my room. So I had to watch Johnny Carson too as a kid. So nine years old, seven, eight, nine years old, I would just take the jokes that were being told by uh, David Brenner and Steve Allen and a young uh, David Letterman. Uh, uh, who else would be on there? Franklin Ajay. Uh, you guys, when, you, when you're hearing this, you, you go Google these guys. Uh, a young Jay Leno. Uh, uh, these were like sort of like, uh, you know, Richard Pryor. What? So I would take those jokes. And tell them at school because those kids wouldn't watch Please tell me you used Richard Pryor on Fridays. Well, I guess it was on primetime, so it wasn't Richard Richard Pryor. Richard Pryor on primetime, you couldn't, you couldn't, he couldn't really say anything on primetime. He was clean. But like uh, 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 Rich Little. And Google Rich Little because Rich Little was the first person that I saw do impersonations. So there was a, there was, this was, this had to be, this had to be like 76, 1976. So it was like fifth grade for me. The joke was uh, Jimmy Carter, which was the president at the time, singing You Light Up My Life. 
And at that time, his brother uh, was getting caught drunk all the time, like uh, Billy. <laughs> uh, so it was a Jimmy Carter guns. Uh, so many nights, uh, me and my brother Billy uh, would sit by the window waiting for somebody to bring some peanuts and beer. And so that was my first attempt at an, an impersonation. And then it went on from there to do Richard Nixon. I am not a crook. So, you know, uh, who else would I do? Reagan. Uh, that came later. But but here's it. Reagan came later, but Reagan came like in the 80s when I was actually like 21. And I was the first black guy uh, doing the Reagan impersonation. Probably the only one. So I would be uh, on stage doing my impersonations and going to Ronald Reagan. People are like, no, it ain't no way. Well, well, as a matter of fact, I, uh, well, uh, oh, no, there you go again. And so that <laughs> that being being young and, and, and that teacher, Miss Reeves and Miss Miss Douthit and all those teachers allowed Miss Cole allowed me to be myself, um, you know, help me hone in on what I was going to be doing for the rest of my life. Like, like literally my friends from Terra go like, how the fuck did you do that? This is the shit you used to do. <laughs> you turned your third in the grade cafeteria. <laughs> right, it was literally the same shit. I'd be like, wow, millions of people are watching this shit. And it's the same, it's the same thing. And then, and then, you know, as people came uh came up you know the the impersonation you know like the cosby is back in to do the cosby impersonation is back in don't know how i'm gonna do it but there's definitely a cosby joke somewhere i don't know where it, but I, I i used to do Cosby because of the people and the jello pudding and the and the filth and the flying and the farm which eddie murphy did but people didn't know like Cosby's real speaking voice is not like that. What's the speaking voice like? His speaking voice was different because I remember I got in trouble with Mr. Cosby because uh, he felt that the, the 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 movie Booty Call was not cool. And he said some things in the press about us. And I was like a young comedian, like, damn, man, I, I'm just trying to work, you know? But but his speaking voice, when he was on the phone, well, see, the thing is, is that when you do something like Booty Call, what is a booty call? Say, why are you calling the book? You know, whatever. But it was so, it wasn't the, it was because, you, and then you find out that that was your stick. Yeah, yeah. Because the kid and the child and the people and the far, but, you know. So I know that that will, that will come up. I, I'll, I'll find a joke for, for Cosby that, uh, of course, is going to be a little, uh, people are going to be like, uh, but it's going to be funny and shit. Uh, and now, who who's now, uh, Doc Rivers from uh, the Clippers. Hey, you know, we're going to try. Hey, you know, it's, it's not Blake's fault. You know, next year we got to you know, we, we do better. You know, it's it. So I'm working on, like, the new impersonations now. Uh, and so that's, and the way you do an impersonation is usually about, it's, it's, it's musical. Like, um, say Kermit the Frog, right? So Kermit the Frog is, yeah. so it's sort of like the way you do your, yeah. Yeah, you. you know what I'm saying? It's, it's finding, yeah. Right, so so the actual voice tone is in the key of G for Kermit the Frog. Kermit, Kermit the Frog here, here with the Sesame Street. So that's, and then once you get the voice tone, it's how you make, it's how you manipulate your 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 mouth to get the sound. Cause you know it's eh, 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 eh. so it's it's sort of constricting 
And then and then and then it's and then it's asking the character to come sit with you. Uh, Kermit the Frog here. Here with the uh, three little pi- so you know. It's, but the key is this, and at the same time, Kermit the Frog. Who else sounds like that? Sammy Davis Jr. A little bit. Uh, because you know, man. <laughs> so now Kermit the Frog is is one way. But if you just twist your voice or twist your mouth to the right. And grab some swag. Now you're Sammy Davis Jr. Come with you, figure because man, you know it's the same voice. You know, so that's that's sort of like the mechanical way of of getting to the impression. So you would start with not the visual, because obviously those people who are listening can't see this, but the uh, mannerisms are also very much on point. Mannerisms are are important because, like, uh, uh. Like I, I, I do a LeBron James impersonation, which is really not a a a, 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 a voice. It's more of his mannerism. It's the jaw, you know. It's the look. <laughs> Let's go, bro. You know, just go, bro. You know, the game of basketball. You know, we just try to, you know, you know, it's that. You know, you know, it's right. It's right after. It's right after playing. You know, when he comes off the off the, the court, they catch me still tied. You know, uh, you know, the game of basketball. We just try to, you know, do the best. You know, so it's the the mannerism. So people will appreciate the mannerisms yeah, first. The physicality, the physicality of of someone like uh, 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 LeBron or you know different. You know, like I said, different different personalities bring bring about different things. When you look back on what uh, what Ray said to you. If you can play the blues, you can do anything. If you had to translate that for your own kids, let's just say, if you can do X, fill in the blank, you can do anything, what would you put in that blank? I, I would say this. It's a, it's a couple of things when you have kids who grow up around Hollywood. If you can stay motivated and if you can not do some things, not be jaded, not be entitled, not be spoiled, not do drugs, not get into all the bad stuff because it's, they, you know, our kids live in an elevated space. So what I try to do, and, and Ricardo sees this all, Ricardo sees this all the time. And so does Justine. We don't play around when it comes to discipline as well. Like when the kids are here and all of our friends, the size of the house means nothing to if you don't do the right thing. You're going to get in major trouble and you're going to get in Texas trouble. You know what I'm saying? Like how my grandmother disciplined. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a different thing when it comes to kids that are live in a privileged situation. Luckily, my daughters are very, very, uh, especially my oldest daughter. My oldest daughter never even asked me for money. Never asked for the new car. Never asked for a plane ticket, ride coach. I mean, you know, so I think she really, really has. Uh, a great head on her shoulders. I remember I got this Rolls Royce and I went to go pick my daughter up in the Rolls Royce thinking that's going to be, you know, I'll pick her up in the Rolls Royce, drop the top, drop it. What up, dog? So I'm riding, go to pick her up at school. She won't get in the car. <laughs> I said, baby, what, what, what are you doing? Look at the top. It comes up. She says, dad, I'm not getting in the car. Calls her mom. I said, could you come pick, pick me up? I said, what you doing? She said, I'm not getting, you, you goofy. You make me, you make me look stupid in front of my friends. I was like, oh, so, you know, she's really, and that's something she has on the inside. My youngest daughter is a little different. She wants to ride in the rain, in the Rolls Royce all the time. Daddy, let's take this car. We riding down Sunset Boulevard. She playing Rihanna, you know what I'm saying, with her shades on. 
So she's a little different in, in, in that sense. And I remember telling her, I said, well, 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 Annalise, we can't ride around in L.A. in the, in the limo, in the, in the Rolls Royce with the top down. You know, we're on our way to the Soho house and it's sort of finicky up there. So I got to at least put the top up. She's like, why? I said, I just, I said, listen, let me ride until I get to Soho house and then I'll put the top up as we get there. Okay. So we ride up in the Soho house. We're in the valet and all of these, you know, celebs and people are coming out. <laughs> And she yells out, Jamie Foxx in the house. And I'm like, hell no. So I'm trying to pull the top down. All of the other celebrities like, look at this motherfucker being arrogant and shit. He's so gaudy. This motherfucker. And he's got his kid announcing him. So, so you know, it's a lot of things you can tell your kids, man. And then, and then you just have to hope for the best and, and, and be there. What, uh, what is your birth name? Eric Marlon Bishop. And how did Eric Marlon Bishop become Jamie Foxx? Man, I was Eric Marlon Bishop. Graduated high school, 86. I get out to California and I start doing, you know, I'm in college and, and, and uh, um, doing the music. But I would go up on these open mic nights for comedy. So I go, I do really well. Did I get, get like standing ovation. And then I, I came to L.A., got a standing ovation. And then when I came back every week, I wouldn't get called up. I was like, man, what? Why can't? What's going on? But what I noticed and the, was, and is the how does the open mic work? Well, here's it is. What you do is you put your name on the list, put your name on the list, and they pick from the list, and they say, okay, these are people that are going up. So I went up, had a great set. Then for the next three, four weeks, I didn't. They never called my name. I said, yo, money, did you see my name? Yeah, yeah, you weren't on the list. You were on the list, but we, we got other people. But I found out that the comedians were actually running the list. So the comedians that had been here for a while was like, we don't want him on here because he's showing us up. So I was like, fuck. So I ended up going to this evening at the improv, the improv like in Santa Monica. And so I had never been there. So I would notice that a hundred guys would show up. Five girls would show up. The five girls would always get on the, on the show because they needed to break up the monotony. So I said, hmm, I got some. So I wrote down on the list all of these unisex names. Stacy Green, Tracy Brown, Jamie Foxx. And now the guy chooses from the list. He says, uh, is uh, Jamie Foxx, is she here? She'll be first. I was like, no, money, that, that's, that's me. Ah, oh, okay. All right, well, you, you're going to, you're the fresh meat. I said, what's that? They were shooting Evening at the Improv, this old, old comedy show back in the day. Say, you'll be the guy that will just throw up to see if you get a laugh or two. You know, it's going to be a tough crowd. Fresh meat. Fresh meat. I said, cool. So I go up in between two of the guys, get a standing ovation. People are like, who's the kid? Is he on the show? I said, no, he's fresh meat. He's amateur. So then they started yelling my name. Yo, Jamie. Yo, Jamie. Hey, Jamie. But I'm not used to the name. <laughs> so now they think I'm arrogant. This motherfucker thinks he's the she. not even listening to us. So I, I, I took that name and it stuck. And then I started building everything out off of it. I, uh, back in the day, people used to wear jackets and put names on the jacket. So I had Sly as a dot, dot, dot. Uh, coming to the foxhole, foxhole, you know, things like that. I'm going to grab a little something to eat. Yeah, sure thing. Okay, we are back after a little food break. Yeah. And uh, we talked about some of your comedy starting in third grade, maybe earlier. We talked about uh, Grandmother. And what I'd like to talk about a little bit more is fear. So you mentioned on the other yeah. side of fear. 
by the time you got to doing the open mics, getting up on stage, were you nervous? Were you afraid? Or were you over it? Because nah, you, you, because first I looked at it first. Like I, I went to an open mic night and saw the guys. I was like, man, these dudes are terrible. <laughs> and uh, so when you go on stage, and your whole life is not, I want to be a comedian. I went on stage like, yo, I'm gonna just fuck around. So if I hit, cool. If I miss, I wasn't trying to be Who that cares? anyway. You know, I wanted to do more music, but but when I went on stage, it was just like it was it was just natural. It was a, a you know I belong here. So I think that's the thing too when it comes to entertainment. Uh, there's a certain like, oh, I belong here. This is what I'm supposed to do. How successful I will be or won't be. That's something out of my hands, but I do know that this is where I belong, and that's with anything and anybody. Like when you can, when you can sort of listen to that voice in your head or what's in your heart, and you get a chance to do something that you really feel like you're supposed to do, that alleviates a lot of the fear. Now, if it was a surgeon or a lawyer or something, you know, something like, you know, if something that I'm not, you know, versed in or something like that, then maybe there would be more fear. But with this. You don't have, well, I don't have those types of fears. And and as I've gotten older in the business, I've sort of simplified things. Like now I just execute. I have to ask people like Ricardo, Justin, Justin, what should I ex- execute? So the fear of a celebrity or, or, or an artist now is how do I get my art off in a world where it's, uh, uh, the, the the social media driven sort of uh uh ridicule and critici- criticism like i always say like this like a person like prince or a person like michael jackson could have never survived in today's world because in the in the day of the internet and where everybody has a voice <clears throat> most of the voices are hateful voices or not understanding like like if you saw prince with uh um uh, a guitar and a bandana and the way he dressed, you know, people would meme the shit out of it, you know? So now it's a, a it's, it's not a fear, but it's just a, a question that I have to always ask them like, yo, is this, is this the cool shit to do or not the cool shit to do? And so what I learned is when it's just executing something, when it's either executing a song or executing a joke or executing things within within uh, entertainment, it's cool. But then you have to wonder, like, how do you get it off? Like, how do you, like, even now when you talk about the Bill Cosby joke, back in the day, we just tell the joke. Now you got to be like, okay, I got to tell the joke in a way that is still funny. It still keeps the bite on it. But, you know, so those are the different, like, for me as a, a entertainer, where there's not fear, it's just like, you know, questions does that make sense makes sense no it does make sense the considerations when you when you uh have you bombed on stage before oh yeah okay what's what's what, two things what do you when you are bombing yeah what is your internal dialogue or oh, response and then second internal dialogue is boy you stink <laughs> boy you bombing <laughs> uh i bomb and it wasn't a lot of, i only bombed like twice do you remember your first? Yeah, yeah. I, I did this this show for this guy named Lattimore, old blues singer. I'm 21. What was his name? Lattimore. Lattimore. Sounds like Voldemort. Yeah, yeah Lattimore. Lattimore. So 
this guy saw me at this other club and said, hey, man, you know, Lattimore's performing around the corner. Man, would you come and open them? I said, whatever. I said, how much you paid? He said, pay $50. I said, I'm there. 50 bucks. I need it. So this is like $89.90. So I get there, and I don't know who Lattimore is. I just know it's a lot of older people. Like, I mean, like, oh, oh. I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> Where are the people at? And these other people. So I go up, and the setting was different. It was like the chairs and stuff were way in the back. It was like a book banquet setting. And it's in the middle of the hood, you know, Crenshaw. And, like, the tables are, like, from here to where, like, 20 feet away, 30 feet away from me. So I don't have that. And um, I, oh, you and didn't I have been, that yeah, proximity. And I hadn't been doing stand-up comedy that long. I'd only been doing it for, like, a year. So I had, if I'm funny, I got an hour. If I'm not funny, it's about 10 minutes worth of shit because I would just take a joke and just keep spinning it and spinning it. So my first joke, they didn't get. Second joke, they didn't get. I said, shit, I'm daring all the jokes. So I said, well, let me do this before I do anything. Let me just talk about people in the audience. So I looked and I saw this guy with this sort of suit on with a butterfly collar. I'm like, oh, shit, I'm going to talk about him with the butterfly collar. But before I could say that, I looked around. Everybody has a butterfly collar. This is what they really want to look like. And so uh, I just said, hey, man, I, you know, I don't know what else y'all want. And uh, pretty soon Lattimore is going to come up. You guys ready for Lattimore? And I just started doing that. So I'm going to take a break. So I get off stage. And the dude that was washing the dishes takes his apron off and goes, man, I got it. As a mic, how y'all feel? And he started doing these old stock jokes, kills. <laughs> and so I said, okay, now I know what it is. You got to have jokes that are appropriate for your audience. So I learned on how to tell jokes for everybody because at first my jokes was geared towards women and was singing and did that. So what I started doing from that from that day on, I would go to like Des Moines, Iowa, Davenport, Iowa, Boise, Idaho where it's all white, Gunnison, Colorado, all white. And I would go do like 40 minutes of all black material to see what they understood, what they didn't understand. So if I go to these all white places, and if they understood 15 minutes, I log that 15 minutes. I can go to any place where it's just all white. And and you would determine they if understand. they understood it by the laughs. Huh? You would, if, you would determine if they understood by the it laugh. by the if laughs. By, by the, you know, I would ask, y'all know who this is? Uh, and so I would tell the joke if 15 minutes they understood it I can go to any place in the world that's all white and they get it then I would go to my chocolate city Chicago D.C. Uh, Florida and do all of my uh, political highbrow stuff and see what the see, see what the black folks understood man what the fuck are you talking about doc now they understood 15 minutes now I got 15 to 30 minutes to 45 minutes that wherever I go no matter what age They'll understand no matter what gender, no matter what race, they'll understand this 45 minutes. So I had to learn how to use the formula in order for you to be funny. And then once you got your comedy license, once you've been seen by enough people in the highest way, like in the, like if you look at, uh, like if you look at the arc of a Kevin Hart, like Kevin Hart takes that arc, takes the same formula. I'm not for sure how he, put it in his in his in his mind but he's doing the same thing to where he's going to all of these places all over the world implementing his comedy and if they get it he's he's gathering all of that so that now when people see Kevin Hart no matter where in the world they're going to laugh 
You know, so it's the, 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 you know, becoming a great comedian is also having that formula going on in your head because if you, if you paint yourself into a corner, like you're only the black comedian or you're only the Hispanic comedian or whatever that is, then it's hard for you to become universal. I mean, Eddie was, Eddie Murphy was great. He had an opportunity through Saturday Night Live to get it to everybody, but uh, uh, it's definitely a, a formula to not bomb it. So, what would you say to yourself? So that was the first bomb. You mentioned two. Yeah. What was the second? Second one. And if if it's too if it's hard to recall, the 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 follow up question is going to be, what is the post game analysis when you step off the stage after bombing? Say the second time. Well, well, you gotta. When I bombed the second time was way later in my career when I'm working out jokes, but I don't like to work out jokes and tell people I'm working out. I like to actually do a show, come and do the show. Right. So we're in a, I think it was Irvine. So you don't tell people you're working on it. No, 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 no. I think, I think that's cheating. And I think you, you get bad habits. So I, I do a show in Irvine, California. First show I kill. They was just ready for me. I'm like, oh man, everything works. Second show. <laughs> bombed. Because I didn't take time to dig out the jokes and that. So, but when you bomb, you go like, okay, all right, let's go. Let's check it out. So I got a team of my, my guys. I said, let's go. Okay, that didn't work. No, you got to put this in front of that. You got to put that behind this because that's going to kick this off. People didn't know what that was. So maybe you don't say that. So, you know, you have to, you, when you take the bomb, when we take the L, it's not like you're not funny. What's the L? Like you take the loss. Oh, okay. When you take the loss, it's not like you're not <laughs> funny. It's just like, okay, you just didn't put the shit together. So that's the other thing too. When you do become funny, it's going to be harder now to make people laugh because you set the bar. So the, now you high water. Yeah. So now, so watch this. The hardest part for Chris Rock was after he had done something great in stand up, because now you got to top that. The hardest part for Eddie Murphy, because Eddie wants to come out and do stand up, is how do I top that in your head? The hardest part is coming for Kevin Hart in the fact that you sm- you smashed him. Now you gotta you gotta you know what I'm saying you gotta know how to you, you gotta know how to refresh yeah. because when you do something like like I I would look at my stuff and go like I gotta quit doing that because that shtick that I'm doing people are catching on and they're like okay motherfucker we've already seen that shit so that that's the other thing you gotta have great material. And you gotta have, you gotta know, you gotta know how to move. Cause like right now, it's the perfect time for Eddie Murphy to come out and do stand up. Because it's been so long, it's nostalgic. It was 30 years ago. So now you can catch a new young, uh, you can still excite the older, you know what I'm saying? So being a stand up comedian is tough. And you've seen a lot of funny guys not be funny anymore. Why? Because you can't top what you did. You look at the Jim Carrey, you go like, okay, man, where you at? Where you at? You know what I'm saying? You know, don't give up the funny. Uh, or you look at Chris, I always look at Chris Tucker and be like, motherfucker, where you at? Don't, don't leave, don't leave us. Because being a stand-up comedian is an interesting thing. Most stand-up comedians want to look good. In what way? They just want to look good. Think about this. When Eddie Murphy started doing stand-up, he was funny. But then he started doing, you know, the weather leather suits and it was a fly shit and the rings. And they didn't want to look good. Joe Piscopo started working out. With the muscles, you know what I'm saying? So as a stand-up comedian, we got to be careful not to look too good 
because people start going, like, what the fuck are you doing? You ain't cute, nigga. We just want to laugh. You know what I'm saying? But when we started, you know, we started getting into our shit, that's when we looped because I did that. Like, like I got to, uh, my thing was uh, after In Living Color, the show called In Living Color that I did, I, I felt like I had made it. So I wasn't necessarily on the good looking shit, but I was on the, I've made it jokes. I went on stage and was doing rich jokes. Just got that Range Rover. Anybody else? It's crazy out here. You know, they're so finicky, right? Motherfuckers are looking at me like, what the fuck is you talking about? <laughs> and then uh, uh, I was talking about, you know, the square footage of the house, man. When they get a certain square feet, man, that shit is crazy and maintaining, you know? <laughs> Motherfuckers are like, motherfucker, if you don't get off the goddamn stage. I'd lost it. Right. I lost it. And I walked off stage and all of a sudden, I walk off stage. I give it up for Jamie Foxx. And I'm thinking, they're going crazy. Yeah, yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. And I'm standing outside the club and I hear the crowd going crazy. I'm like, what the fuck are they doing? I just went off stage. What the fuck are they laughing at? And I opened the door and there was a kid, skinny, little tank top on, barely fit. His name was Chris Tucker. He was smashing. He was, no one has been that funny within 15 minutes. I've never seen, I've never seen, and I watch them all. I've never seen a stand-up where people were laughing so hard. Like, I said, he's going to kill somebody. Somebody's gonna, <laughs> like, when he says, last night, how was you? Oh, I killed. It's going to be true. Somebody's going to have a fucking heart attack. <laughs> and I sat down and said, and I went, I can't do that. I lost that. So I left, went to another club that night, bomb. Like, it wasn't just, you know. So finally, I went over to Okinawa where the troops were. I started doing stand-up over there for the troops to sort of get back. It was my Rocky moment. Like, you know, I started running up the steps, chasing chickens and shit. Bah, 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 bah. <laughs> Trying to get back. And uh, uh, for a stand-up comedian, that's the one thing you can never let go. You can never stop being, excuse me, a certain goofiness to you. And so, and like when you talk about fear or when you talk about bombing, it's, uh, uh, it's different when, you, when, you, when you've done it for a long time, you know. And when you do bomb, you just got to get right back up in it. And you got to acknowledge it. Okay, I stunk, nigga. Because they're going to let you know. <laughs> yeah, they'll let you Like know. today's world, it ain't, you can't do nothing in today's world without somebody letting you know, like, oh, nigga, you fucked that up. Like, <laughs> you know. What are the sources or where do most of your best bits come from? When you look back at the stuff that just killed, uh, is it... The shower, the the thing that bugs you three times, so you write it down. I mean, how do you develop your material? It was observation, and like you know, I do jokes with them. You know, it's just sort of like observation. Uh, you know, early on, it was the black and white thing. You know, black folks do it this way, white folks do it, which was the way we were doing comedy in 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 the 80, late eighties and nineties. Oh, the average white man's heart—it has no, it has to do with the heart. The average white man's heart beats like this. While the average black man's heart beats like this. <laughs> you know, ladies, that's why you have a choice. Would you rather make love to somebody like this? Or would you rather make love to somebody like this? <laughs> I mean, that was the jokes, you know, at the time. So it was observational. And then it was personal. Like, you do your observation first, and then it was personal. My grandmother, who was, uh, um, you know, we lived together, you know. And when she first heard, like, uh, on television what AIDS was being old she didn't know what it ac exactly meant she just knew that it was bad but she thought that since she's always on me anyway that I'm gonna catch AIDS <laughs> but it was for the wrong reasons like she would say boy you gonna it's 6 in the morning you gonna wake up shit half the day done gone I said granny it, it, 
What you mean? Is it six? Shit, I'm there sleeping. Anybody sleep that long got to have AIDS. I said, <laughs> I said Granny, I don't think that's how. No, I saw it on TV. You're sleeping too long. You got AIDS. I said, Granny, I don't think that's how they exactly. <laughs> and then, like, I would use her towels. Like, you know, you you know, old Southern women had them. There was a towel used, and it was a nice towel. So I used a nice towel. <laughs> Well, I know you ain't using my towels. I said, you don't you put the A's on the towels. You don't use everybody's towels. Anybody use the towel like that got to have A's. I said, Granny, I don't think that's how, you know, so it was opposite. And this is what she was actually saying. So when I did that joke on stage, people was just, you know, would die. So it's observational, then it's personal. And then some of the comedians are great politically. I'm not necessarily a political guy. My thing was the impersonation of the politician, like Bill Clinton. Uh, you know, uh, I did not have sex with that woman. You know, it was, you know, things like that. But uh, uh, it's so many different ways and so many different guys out there that you, that, that you look at and go, ooh. Like when I would look at a young Chris Rock, the way he was a technician, just me. Or you look at Jay Leno, or you look at uh, even Arsenio Hall when he would work out, or you see Eddie working out a joke. Uh, you know, it's they are, or, or watching George Lopez, who knows how to tap into the bass and just really bring you into his world and stuff. So it's some, it's some, uh, some guys that Sarah Silverman, uh, just I mean, a technician, Amy Schumer. Watching her on a, just a Saturday Night Live when she's, you know, working her shit out. Uh, a young Whoopi Goldberg at the Met. There's so many people that you can watch and see how to, how to, you know, tap into your own skill set, you know. But uh, I try to look at all of them and try to just, you know, not steal from it, but just get inspired by it all. Who are some of the most underrated comedians who come to mind or people who you'd think haven't had their due haven't been appreciated oh, I, I wouldn't say underrated but i i think that were just that were just like warriors that never got that shine uh there was a guy named tk kirkland who was a warrior but he never got the shine and tk had a colorful past you know and, and he'll let you know he said you know he was he was a crazy motherfucker but tk had jokes like and why does kermit the frog always say hi ho hi ho is he a pimp and why <laughs> and why do fat people wear leather pants do they think that shit is cute and why do people in wheelchairs tie their motherfucking shoes do they think they're gonna trip oh man it was just he was just amazing and, and his delivery you know what i'm saying he say uh uh he says because i'm t to the motherfucking k that's what type of motherfucker i am don't play me, play Lotto. You got a better chance. And he's he he played he he made he made he made himself a character on stage that was just you know you guys are too young to 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 know this joke, but Bugle Boy Jeans. Oh yeah, Bugle Boy Jeans used to have a commercial where a girl would pull up in a car and says, "Excuse me, are those Bugle Boy?" She, she would say this to a guy like he's walking on the street with his jeans. She says. Excuse me, are those Bugle Boy jeans you're wearing? Why, yes, they are. And she get in the car. Right? TK had a joke, man. It was so funny. He said, man, let man let that motherfucker be a motherfucking black girl in the motherfucking car. Excuse me. Are those Bugle Boy jeans you're wearing? Yeah. Get in the car, motherfucker. I mean, people would just go. The dude has so many, like, levels. And uh, he just, you know, he's he's an underground guy. 
Uh, who else? That was a lot. I mean, a lot of people. Earthquake, amazing. Uh, uh, Earthquake is amazing. Uh, what's my other dude's name? Uh, Tony Roberts, amazing. Tony Roberts, man, I've never laughed. So he says, uh, he said, uh, oh man, I, I had to dig out some of his jokes. But he talks about, uh, it's very physical, but he talks about being on a plane and the plane is going down. And he says, he said he was on a plane and he thought the plane was going down. So he says, so I wanted to fuck everybody before, you know, I wanted to fuck before. He says, oh, while the plane's going down, he's fucking everybody. You know, he fucked the, he fucked the, uh, he fucked the nun. He was fucking everybody. And then the plane leveled off. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, y'all. I, I'm not sorry, my bad. <laughs> Just hilarious, man. And there's a there's so many man, so many, not a lot of new comedians now that are actually uh, it's funny right that are actually dangerous now. We don't have dangerous, dangerous comedians. We the only dangerous? dangerous the dangerous comedian that we have right now is Amy Schumer. She's dangerous in what like, way? Like like she she'll say it like it'll be hot button. You know what I mean? Have you uh, have you ever heard? Uh... I saw this guy on a, I actually heard of him through a, a guy named Evan Goldberg, who's yeah. Seth Rogen's writing yeah. partner. Oh, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and so Gerard, exactly. That was good. Yeah, yeah. So Gerard Carmichael. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. His special. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, He's like, goes. I would never make a rape joke. This is more yeah, of a rape question. question. And it's yeah, like, yeah. Oh my He's God. He's dangerous. That, that struck He's me as da- dangerous. Well, he's da- And it's not a lot of that anymore. It's not a lot of dangerous comedians. And I think that's where we sort of go like, you know, where's that danger? Like you, when you, when you, when you see Amy Schumer, you see like, I saw her in a room talking about catching a dick in front of <laughs> Robert De Niro. Like we're at the American, uh, film awards whatever like that and she's just i mean hardcore dance which is what sarah silverman started out as you know so but amy looks like she's rounded the corner and is now you know really making it you know making it dope for herself if you look back at uh in living color and i i watched the show and it just if in retrospect it seems like such a such a magical combination of people so how did that group get assembled and uh i mean what made that team so special because i mean you look at the list right i mean you've got chris rock you've got jim carrey you've got the waynes you've got it just goes uh, jennifer lopez you've got like you go down the line it's just it's an all-star roster well at that time keenan ivory waynes was a he he put it all together and he was able to grab all of these incredibly talented people and make them get along and figure out how to squeeze all of this talent into 22 minutes of programming. Sure. Because it was only, it was a 30 minute show, so it was 22 minutes. But he was very disciplined in how we make jokes. You were not allowed to come in and be half-assed. He pulled you to the side and say, as a black comedian, you cannot be half-assed. You're either great or you don't exist. So, and he says, don't take the racial part of that any kind of way. That's just the way it is. Because he wrote for Eddie Murphy. He was around the greatest. He says, I'm around the greatest all the time. So that's what we going to do. So when you see Damon Wayans come in and I just got hired, like they had already been doing the show for like a year or two years. So when I saw Damon walk in and Jim walk in, it was like, 
it was like fucking Jurassic Park. <laughs> it was like fucking T-Rex and fucking, you know what I'm saying? And the way I got on the show was was crazy too because it went from the auditioning process. It was 100 comedians down to 50, down to 25, down to 10, down to 5. I was part of the 5, but I was losing. I wasn't doing well within the uh, improv of it because I just wasn't catching catching the right shit. And then Keenan says something incredible. He says, well, I dig this, but I want to see y'all on stage doing stand-up because I want to have stand-up comedians. I was like, oh, shit, that's my shit. That's my shit. And the other four people didn't do stand-up. It was only one other girl that did stand-up. God bless her, Yvette Wilson. But the other three didn't do stand-up. So I was like, oh, man. So that night, everybody's going to the Laugh Factory, which was just starting. Because at, at that time, the comedy store was dominating. Laugh Factory was just, and, and they begged, can we please have the audition in the Laugh Factory? So I show up late on purpose because I wanted to be last. Ah, uh, smart. So I show up late, and Tamara Rawit, uh, who was the producer on there, what are you doing? You're late. Oh, my God. Why aren't you here? We're supposed to go on early. You're supposed to be first, Jamie. Oh, my God. You're going to kill me. <laughs> I said, oh, damn. Well, we're gonna, can, I, can I just go up last? Yes, you have to because we've already started. Get in here. you Whatever. So go ahead. Now, this was interesting for me because I was in white world. I was like on the mainstream. I did all my jokes in the hood at that time. You know what I'm saying? I was the hood guy. So I was like, oh, shit, you know, we uptown. You know what I'm saying? It's like everything's clean and shit. You know, ain't no weed in the air or nothing. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> ain't nobody snuck no drinks in and shit. And it's an audition thing. So I'm watching the guys, and, you know, God bless them. They just had never done stand-up before. So I had my cassette tape, and I knew what I was coming up to. I'm coming up to Heavy D's in Effect with more bounce to the ounce. So I get a dude with my tape. He's like, what's this? That's my tape. Uh, you know, I go on with music. You know, up there, they didn't go on with music. They just went up a hand clap. I said, no, man, I got I to gotta come in with Heavy D's in Effect with more bounce to the pumps. I need the crowd going. It's okay, sure. So he's standing there with the tape. <laughs> and then Sean Wayans gave me a great tip. He he walked up. He said, yo, Jamie, just go up and do your act, man. Just stop worrying about it. Don't, don't worry about the characters. Just do your act. Yo, Marlon, Marlon, come here. Tell Jamie. Just do your act. I said, oh, really? Just do my act? Do my act like I do in the hood? Yeah, do your act like you're doing in the hood. I said, straight. Cool. So I go up. They don't play the music. <laughs> I'm waiting on them. I'm like, yo, you got my music? The dude's over there like I said, well, I'm supposed to have some music. <laughs> and I said, if if this shit goes wrong, you will actually see me working across the street at the gas station. <laughs> and I went into a character. Man, I was in there with Keenan and all of them, dog. And it just didn't. So I did this little character. And then I went into my act. And uh, I got a standing ovation that night. And I remember seeing Jim Carrey and Keenan, Fly Girls, like, on their feet. Like, I said, oh, man, this is great. And that's how I got on the show. And during that show, <clears throat> I did this character called Wanda, <laughs> where I said, all the good-looking ladies, clap your hands. And everybody said, I said, now all the ugly ladies, let me see you make some noise. It was quiet. I said, ain't that a business? And all the ugly ladies, I thought, hey, for real, though, he ain't talking about me. So we did this character. Keenan was like, I want you to do that character on the show, because I think that's where you'll, you'll, uh, you'll really uh, flourish. And when we did that, when I did that character, that's when everything sort of changed because I was trying to find my bearings on the show because we got on the show, but we were there for a trial basis. But when I did that character, it was like, it was like, it was like playing football and I was like the punt returner and I was the rookie and I ran it all the way back the first day. 
Uh, so nobody really knew who I was, but they knew that this character was 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 slamming. And so they sort of gave me like my stripes because uh, these guys were juggernauts. I watched I watched Keenan. I said, Keenan, these jokes ain't funny. That the writers that the, that the writers wrote. He says, Get on your feet, everybody, get up. Let's do this. So he was like, There's never a joke that's not funny. You just got to work and find it. So he taught us the formula of finding the jokes, and he was right every single time. And so. Uh, like I said, to be there watching Jim Carrey, like, create Pet Detective on set. He's writing Pet Detective as a warrior. I said, what's that you writing on? Hey, man, just, uh, you know, working on some stuff. You know, just got some stuff I'm working on. <laughs> so what is that? Man, it's a little thing called Pet Detective. I said, okay, sound funny. And was he developing it for the show at that no, time? He was or developing for, he was for much later. For his own shit. I got to make one phone call. No problem. All right, so we're, we're back. We took a little took a little breather. But uh, what were we catch us up? What were we just talking about? We were talking about how nowadays is that you don't get a chance to control your own narrative. Like we were talking about is there's two different people. Some people think that the tech world and the and social media and things on the internet is taking us to a great place, and then there's people who think that it's a horrible place. I had I spoke with a um, a young lady who had been burned bad, bad by the press, bad to where she lost her job. And what was interesting about her job was that what they were scolding her about was, like, me knowing her, I was like, you're not like that at all. She says, I can't. There's nothing I can do. Everybody thinks so. And they took something like they went through emails and through our personal emails and all of a sudden, whatever it was. But it was just like, you're not like that at all. So when I was on the phone talking with her, she was like, they're saying this and I said, ah, don't worry about it. You, you're cool. Like, you're not like that. I don't give a fuck. But I hadn't, I'm bowling. I'm like, I don't, I don't even, I don't even need to read it. What could they possibly say? And when I look, it was a national story. I went, what the fuck? She lost her job. Yeah. And so like, even like you'll do something where you think that it's either you're making fun or you're having fun. Yeah. But they'll take whatever it is that you say and make it what they wanted to say. Yeah. Or craft it where, like, if you do a joke, it's not about doing a joke anymore. Jamie Foxx slams Caitlyn Jenner. Jamie Foxx trounces. Like, nah, I'm a comedian. We do, do. But everything is something that they control. And, and it, it it's tough because when I say Justin Bieber, what do you think? What's the first thing that comes to mind? Be honest. Hair that I'm jealous of. Yeah. But what do you think? But what do you think? Something about a kid who yeah. can't get it together. When right. I say Chris Brown, what do you think? It's something negative. When I say Jennifer Aniston, what do you think? What <laughs> think do you think? think cover of Rolling Stone photograph, black and Brad white. Pitt? <laughs> you think what? Cover of Rolling Stone magazine, black and white, naked, laying on a bed. Oh, but that's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> well, the average person <laughs> right. would think of not what they do. Right, but the impression, the headline, right, is. the subliminal image they yeah, got at the no, checkout it, counter. Yeah, it's, not, it's, it's the headline. If I say, if I say Jennifer Aniston, you automatically think, because nowadays they control. We don't control our own narrative to where it's like they, they talked about this thing with with uh, Quentin Tarantino, which I thought was sad because usually when you see a, 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 a story about black lives matter or anything black, it's usually the, the same black folks with the Kofi who's trying to be heard. And they're absolutely right. They're absolutely, it's so much wrong going on in black world. There's black on black crime. Then there's the, the, the divide that is because of social media is 
uh, that is going on between the police officers and black folk. Police officers are, on the whole, are great folk. I know them. I, I, shit, I know a gang of police officers. But the one or two that have been caught on social media makes it look, paint the picture, that it's all of them. Now, granted, we've known for a long time that blacks and police officers have always had a divide. We've done music. We've done movies about it. We've done books about it. It just is the way it is. Now, my take on it is because I call it residue. It's slave residue, meaning that slavery for 300 years, you saw a person of, of color a certain way for 300 years. You've always saw him as a slave or the criminal or what something that you didn't value. So therefore, coming out of that, of course, there's going to be a divide when it comes to police and when it comes to blacks and when it comes. To, that's always been that way. So take that off the table. Right. But in today's world of how do we bridge that gap? I've gone to Quantico in Virginia, saw what it, what a police officer sees. I've talked to police officers that how can we bridge the gap? I've suggested that you go get a white police officer who you think might not like black folk. You know what I'm saying? Get that person to go into the hood and throw a picnic for a kid that's eight, nine, ten years old who's African American, so that he can see another, another side, another side of the police officer because right now in social media or in media period, the stories that are the most salacious where it's the, the, the black person, the, the black cop being, ki- the black guy being killed by a cop. It's hard to erase those images. I'm a black man. When I see that, I have to react to that because I'm like, wow, you know, I, that, that troubles me. But then I have to sit down and think, okay, let me not think of the worst thing to say. But let me think, because I know how media tries to make things or heighten it. Right. How do I bring people together in spite of the headline? Because what people don't understand is that when you keep showing the images of the black guy being killed by the, by the cop, that does something to you. Oh, yeah. That's like whatever you believe in. If it, if it was a Jewish person, if it was a gay person, you cannot sit and not be bothered by that. At the same time, that cop, when he sees the other side of it, when they're saying all of you guys ain't shit, which that's not what's really being said. Most of the time it's with the individual cop. Now the cop sees the story. In his mind now, well, fuck, well, it's a problem now. So now imagine... That cop who's watching the story, driving on the street, that young black kid who's watching the story, walking on the street, what happens? Dynamite. Dynamite. Because we can't get it, we can't, we can't get anybody responsible on the media side to say, let's stop interviewing people and putting labels on them. Let's interview this man and this woman, but don't say that they're Democrat, don't say that they're Republican, don't say that they're a cop, just have them talk. Because when you see, when you're watching TV and you see something that you agree with, you agree with them only and you can't hear the other person. That's the first thing. Two, like when I look at Quentin Tarantino, to demonize this guy. Can, and just because people might be listening to this for years, could you catch people up on well, let me catch, catch, the confusion? Quentin Tarantino, who is a purist when it comes to his opinions and his emotions even if even if 
You could go, I could go to Quentin Tarantino and say something, man, I think, you know, as a black person and so on, so on, so on. He say, well, stop doing that. Stop hanging it just on black. Hanging on things that are substance first and then let it be. Ha- I mean, so I've, I've heard this guy speak when there's no cameras. I said, wow, you know what? You make a lot of sense. So Quentin Tarantino uh, sees the Black Lives Matter campaign sees the individual stories, 40 different people of individual stories where a police officer had killed the person who was unarmed. It touched him. The reason I thought that was impactful because you seldom see the white superstar go and stand with the black folk who just trying to be heard. Even high-end black guys don't go stand with the black folks that's trying to be heard when it comes to, like, especially Hollywood. Because, you know, people in Hollywood are so scared. Oh, oh they won't see my movie. Oh, they won't go see my song if I, stand, if I stand up for anything of substance. They so fucking scared. So when I saw this dude do that, I was like, wow, that's great. But then the misinterpretation of his words where he says, I'm standing here with the murdered. Quentin Tarantino speaks that way. He speaks. If you've read any of his uh, movie or saw any of his movies, he speaks in those terms. He says, I stand with the murdered. When I see someone being murdered, I call it what it is. It's a murder. That's a murderer that killed this, this person. However, the story got spun was that Quentin Tarantino is a cop hater. He hates all cops and that all cops are murderers. And I was just like, oh, here we go again, man. Here's a person who's willing. And I'm going to speak like willing to put aside his white, cushy Hollywoodness. He could live on, in his, on his mountain and never give a shit about anything. He came out and said, man, I felt something. And now they paint it so bad. And now you got you got the New York cop. So we got something for his ass. Now it's a beef. Now it's that's not what we we trying to do. But you can't do anything right now because the media story, if it's not salacious, we don't want to report it. We we Just have bleed. to. You, you feel what I'm saying? No, I do. And it's it's. I mean, they, if it bleeds, it leads, right? So they put the salacious, yeah. the, the visually, viscerally impactful stuff up front because it gets the clicks yeah, or the purchases, the, clicks, the, the, the advertising. The the uh, the only, I suppose, flip side to that, and I have a very specific question for you that uh, from a fan, I'd love to ask related to um, some some of these race questions. But the good news is, if you can look at it in these terms, is that the necessity for new is so high that if you starve a story of oxygen it'll often die on its own yeah. because they can't regurgitate the same thing if there's no response. Exactly. And so exactly. You, you can let it kind of die on the vine. Um, but um, we were talking about this before. I mean, I've had instances, <clears throat> and I won't bitch and moan too long because I think the question is more interesting than my bitching, but no, I've, I've had instances where these, these formerly, I would say, outlets of record, you know, very prestigious outlets, yeah. uh, magazines. I'm not going to mention them by name because it's, I know uh, what you're talking but, about, but I was interviewed and profiled by a magazine at one point, very, very highbrow magazine. Yeah. Uh, there were six or seven misquotes or, uh, erroneous facts in the piece. And I corrected those with the fact checker and went to press with no corrections. What do you do in that situation when those things then end up in Wikipedia? So you have to develop a sort of um, strategy. And uh, I mean, this will get even more interesting 
once we have you know smart stadiums, once we have uh, facial recognition, like you see on Facebook, once that's implemented across the board, it'll get very interesting. But I'm going to go down that rabbit hole, and instead, I'm going to uh, bring up a question that I'd love to get. Well, before you go into that, yes, here, here's the problem. Back in the day, if there was a misquote, and you went to that entity and said, "Hey, you, you quoted me wrong," oh, we'll release a statement saying that we misquoted you and it erases the problem with today's world once it's out there you can't get it back yeah. you cannot change you cannot change yeah because it's going to stay there yeah when you when i punch up your name that's the first thing that's going to come up or the second thing that's coming up, you can't get rid of it yeah and when you talk about the regurgitating or the or, or the uh or, or just letting it die you can let it die but the problem is you have to at least once it starts, give another, hopefully that you can give another side of it that people may see a little bit. Sure. They don't want to see. It, what's crazy about our society right now, no one wants to see anybody reconcile. No one wants to see anybody come, come together or say that. Like when I, when I think about Quentin Tarantino, I spoke and said, I back you as a friend and keep, keep speaking the truth and don't worry about the haters. Meaning, speak the truth from you. Not whatever the comment was, right? But whatever you're saying in your truth, right? You say that because you ain't out there. You could be promoting your movie. Mm-hmm. You could be trying to make money. You actually trying to see how you could get how you could go. I know the way he thinks. I'm gonna go talk to them. If they are wrong in what they're saying, I'm gonna tell them. But if they are right, he says, I I'll be the one that can go to the cops and say that. And now. Look! Look at how it is. It, it's so great. Go ahead, ask question. Oh no! I mean, it's. I, I think you're right. I think that people want gladiatorial games, and we don't have gladiatorial games, so they use the front page. Oh, gladiatorial games. But, but speaking of sort of conflict resolution, so this is this is a question from uh, fan TJ. My wife is pregnant. We're moving to a very non-diverse neighborhood. We are kind of worried on how it will go. She is black, and I am white. What is some advice he can give to a young couple raising a child of color in today's world? I'll say this. I'll say the, I'll say this about America. Let's use America as an example. To me, America is the most incredible civilization that has ever been created. Hundreds of years from now, people will look on this, look at this place, and marvel. There's the bitch and the complain aisle where everybody bitches and complains about every single thing. But the one thing about America that is incredible is the evolution of freedom, the change. When I talk about slavery that happened, it was 300 years of it, look at the evolution. We come out of it, we have a black president. People are more welcoming now. Uh, we used to live in a world not too long ago where it was frowned upon, it was tough, it was this. What I would say to people like that, just live your life. Like, I lived my life in places where at, at times it was definitely racial misunderstanding, but I would talk to that person. I would make sure that person understood who I was as a person. I'm not going to compromise who I am as far as a black man, but I'm also going to give you another, another version of it. Not the version that you necessarily see on television, the version that you see on the internet. I'm going to give you me. And most of the time, we are alike in so many different, in so many uh, instances. So when he's saying moving to that non-diverse place, 
It's different, man. Look at the, look at the, I hate to say this, but listen to the kids, bro. <laughs> but when you talk about the kids, <laughs> the kids today, I, I, I'm, I'm at the gym last night, 24 hour fitness. The kid is playing future. White kid. Where your ass is that? When I, white kid. When I first moved into my neighborhood years ago and I felt like I made it, I'm in the white neighborhood now. I'm here. Oh, I'm so, I've made it. And I hear NWA blasting. <laughs> I look out there with these kids. I was 16 years old. So times are changing, man. And you have to start giving people the benefit of the doubt that they'll get it right. And for all those people that were here back in the old days and that are now 50 and 60 and 70 years old, that's dying out. The way of thinking is dying out. You may be looking at a, a situation where you may have the first female president. It's the evolution of, of, of it's the evolution of freedom. Think about how we treated women at one point. No voice, no rights, no nothing. I've heard people say, I'd rather have a black person tell me something to do than a woman any day. But now it's, it's a, so we are on the right path, man. Love who you want to love. Be where you want to be because we are evolving. Look at, look at, look at the steps that, that, that gay rights took in the past few years. Man, that, that was, that's huge when you, when you're talking about people in the Bible belt and the, you know how they felt. So if, if those things are now, like my my daughter taught me, like when she was thirteen, she's twenty one now. She was thirteen, and that was this was this was nine years ago, and it was talking about gay rights and things like that. And 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 I asked her friends, I said, "What do you think about it?" She said, "Dad, we don't think about it." She said, "That's that's you guys." <laughs> that's a good answer. She said, "That's you guys." She said, "That's old people." She said, "That's why we're turned off from religion sometimes." That's why we're turned off from all of these different things because old people argue about where you're from, what you do, what you look like. We don't give a shit. And so thank God for the youth. Thank God for that couple because what they're doing is they're showing a new world. And she said, Dad, if someone was doing something somewhere that was straight, gay, black, white, or brown somewhere else, does it affect you at all? Does your air change? Does anything around you change because the people are living the way they want to live as long as they're not breaking the laws? Like, you know what? You make great points. She went on to my radio show and talked about it. So uh, we are in a new day. What we got to do, though, is we got to stop. I said, like, like I was telling Justine, I said, we got to make shirts to say, let's put let's put media out of business. We got to quit allowing them to control the narrative. Those people like with, with, with Quentin Tarantino or the Black Lives Matter or or people that speak up on something that is broken or that is wrong, you don't give them a chance by painting them in a in a bad situation. Are you going to do another comedy tour? Yeah, I'm going to do another comedy tour, but my, I'm going to start it organically, like uh, maybe 100 people, 200 people, start it organically and just sort of grow it. Uh, I got some great jokes. And that's the thing, like when, when, you're, when, you're, when you're a comedian, it's like you have to pray that the jokes will open up. So I got some great like jokes that people will get and understand. And then just the stuff that's been going on with me, you know, uh, you know, getting older, you know, uh, not realizing you the OG, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, the young, like the young hip hop guy, what's up OG? Damn, that's right. You know, <laughs> I mean, just, 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 it's just some funny stuff. It's, it's some funny stuff. That's a, and, and that's what any comedian would tell you that it's hard to be funny when there's nothing funny happening, but there's been so much funny shit happening 
uh, for like my mom who, you know, adopted and who, who gave me up for adoption in seven months and she comes back to live with me. And as she's living with me, she walks down the first day she's here. She walks down, uh, the steps and says, I want a phantom. I'm like, uh, bitch of the opera. What are you talking about? (laughs) She's talking about a phantom, uh, Rolls Royce. Right. And it was just funny that just certain things that the fact that everybody lives in my house, the fact that my mom, my dad lives here, my two sisters, my dad still dates, you know, and my mom is going on his side of the house when she, when he has a date, you know, just assessing, like just being in a way like, mm, oh, hey, hi, I didn't know you had company, George. I mean, just, and now they've turned, they've turned into kids. So, you know, my dad had come to my room, but uh, 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 could you tell her not to come on my side of the house when I got a date? And I'm like, <laughs> now parents. So, you know, it's funny things are happening. Lots so of organic like, material. Yeah, so it's organic now. So we got funny shit. When you think of the word successful, who is the first person who comes to mind and why? On the bigger picture, because I witnessed this in 2008, to see President Obama become president to me, 2008, not talking about after he became president, because everyone will have their views on, on that. I know what it meant to me. To see him stand up there put his hand on that Bible and say, you know, and become the president of the United States. That is success in so many different ways. And it also, it jars you for every person that says, oh man, just cause I'm black. I'm so... Maybe you can't use that all the time. Cause this man now shows you and whatever side you end up on. Cause it's not a political thing. To see that, and the reason that it means so much to me to see an African American man like do that, like, and literally when uh when 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 he was this was interesting. This is how we connected. When he was thirty points down for the nomination, thirty points down, no one knew who he was. I get a call from Oprah Winfrey. Hi, Jamie Fox. It's Oprah. Hi, Jamie. I'm like, what's going on? There's this guy named Senator Obama. I think he's going to be the next president. Then I got a call from Norman Lear. Jamie, it's Norman Lear. The senator's on fire. So who is he? Senator Obama. But he's 30 points down, so no one knows. The reason they're calling me is because we have a radio show that was reaching everybody, especially the the huge urban market. So I go on my show and I say, "Uh, I'm voting for this guy named Senator Obama because he's black. And I go to commercial. (laughs) When I go to commercial, my phone lines light up with all black people saying that we will not vote for this guy just because he's black. Don't treat us that way. So we ended up educating everybody about him. He gets the nomination and he goes on and he wins. And to me, it was all odds against him. And I thought that, that, that type of success, regardless of where you come from, like I said, whatever side you stand on, to me, that was something monumental. When we talk about where this country has come from, when you talk about the greatness of America evolving and evolving to that type of freedom and him taking advantage of being in America and becoming um, uh, a president to me, that's just success that, that uh, he redefined what it is. What historical figure do you most identify with? Who do I identify with historically? Uh, when it comes to entertainment, Sammy Davis Jr. 
is a person that I look at all the time who I go on the internet and watch him play the drums or watch him sing or watch him dance or watch him uh, do jokes or watch him do a movie or watch him spin guns. To me, he was just the ultimate uh, in a, entertainer. He was a yeah, full stack entertainer, as one engineer said. That's what, they, that's what he called you. Yeah, oh, Meaning man. he kind of, he had all the tools in the toolkit. Oh man, that's great. And then there's, there's other sides of me too. So like the, the sports side, like I was a Magic Johnson like, you know, the person who was, who loved being competitive, but also wanted to get everybody else involved and, you know, the way he played basketball. When it comes to social consciousness. May I interject for a second? Yeah. So this might seem like a funny question, but do you feel like you identify more with Magic Johnson than Kareem Abdul-Jabbar? Yeah. The reason I feel more than Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is because Magic smiled and it was fun. He was happy. You know, not to say that Kareem wasn't, but Kareem was more serious guy. You know, Very if serious. If you ever met him, he's completely serious. serious. You know? I'm more the fun dude. Let's have a good time. And, you know, when it comes to social consciousness and social issues, that's where I, I, I draw from a lot of different people. I think going, I, I think watching Martin Luther King and going to Atlanta and seeing what he did and how he did when he did it, when I look at the bravery of him, it's beyond. Because I, I look at social issues today, how we're so afraid to step out on anything. Like, oh, oh my, my cars and my, my wealth and my money. Oh, I, and, and not to say that I've thought this way all my life. Like, literally, like, it just happened not too long ago where I was like, we got we got to step up more more socially we got to be on social con even if it even if some of the people say oh fuck it i ain't going to your to your movie it's like, okay fine you weren't going to go anyway but we had to step up a little bit more social social wise and when i went to see where martin luther king came from what he did and how his house was he actually came from middle class big nice house but it's right across the street from poor, from poverty and it sort of taught him how to deal with other cultures taught him how to deal with other uh, uh, financial groups. He says, I don't want to see people hurting. He says, I want everybody, you know? So I, I think like that. I've always thought like, uh, even when we talked about earlier, the Jews and the Palestinians in the, uh, in the student center, you know, the rest of the story was I befriended both of them and we all became friends because I call myself spackle, which is the stuff that goes in between the bricks. In between the cracks. Yeah. I'm, I'm spackle. I get along with all religions, get along with all people and try to bring them all together. And so that was the, so when I think about it socially, it is the Martin Luther King thing, because I think sometimes we overlook that the world is big enough for all of us to live on. It's big enough for all of us to, to, to get along. And, uh, sometimes I, I question why is it so tough to get along? You know, which is what Martin Luther King questions. I just don't, I don't get it. And I, and I won't stand by. So, a little, and like I said, I've only thought about like that, you know, here in the past few years after watching Harry Belafonte go on stage before I was supposed to get a Lifetime Achievement Award. And he goes on and says something so prolific. He says, uh, they were talking about violence, and he said, the, the violence that's happening in America is mostly black violence, and you black entertainers sit here mute. And we laid all of this groundwork down for you guys, and you guys are disrespected and not picking up. So, you know, uh, that's the one reason I said I think more socially. It's, I mentioned Kareem Abdul-Jabbar because I saw, just by chance, a fantastic documentary uh, called Minority of One. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's so good. Yeah. And it detailed, in particular, and I'm not, 
I'm not at all well versed with basketball, so it was also a glimpse into that world for yeah. me. Mm-hmm. But his relationship with Magic Johnson, yeah. which was fascinating. Yeah. Do you have any particular favorite documentaries or movies that you just feel are must watches for human beings? I know it's a big question. That's that's yeah, why but I think documentaries on cultures are important. If you get a chance to see a doc, any documentary about Jews and what they went through, watch it. Any documentary documentary about Palestinians and what they've gone through, watch it. Blacks and what they've gone through, watch it. Women and what they've gone through, watch it. The reason that I say it is because if we're talking about the human aspect of it, like I didn't get it until I watched, it was actually The Pianist. Yeah. And I just went, shit. I was like, I didn't know it was like that. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, I, I didn't know that. And so, you know, and then when I listened to some of my friends who like, you know, live in the Middle East and they're going through those things, I said, shit, I didn't know it was like that. So I think anytime you get to watch, get a chance to watch people and where they come from or culture and what they went through, uh, you can even look at it, 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 uh, whites breaking away from, the, I mean, the 13 colonies breaking away from, from England. You go, oh, shit. I didn't know you went through that. So it's like when you do that, you 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 come away with a sense of, okay, I get you now. Right. It helps build your compassion. I, yeah. It helps build your compassion because you, you, you only live in your own world. You know what I'm saying? And unless you get a chance to see what it is, uh, a lot of times your views will be, will be narrow and just watching documentaries like that to, to open up your views are just amazing. When you look at, when you look at the story of, of uh, like I said, the story of slavery, there was a book that I just showed these young guys called Without Sanctuary. Without Sanctuary. Where it's a book where a guy, a photographer, went around the South during the times of slavery and documented lynchings. Oof. And he would document the lynching and take and make postcards. Because at that time, see, we go oof. But at that time, it was commonplace. Yeah, It was a party. So people would get their food. That's where they got picnic from. They would get their food, drinks or whatever, and they would go down and watch the lynching. And so there was a postcard that said, here's the lynching of nigger Charlie. Uh, hope you like it. Hope everything is well. So that was something that was mind-blowing because it was commonplace. You know, so um, when you get it, like I said, when you get a chance to see cultures and history, you understand what what's going on today. And this is the last little factoid. If you get a chance, pull up the Harrison Act. The Harrison Act was an act about taking drugs off the street and making them illegal because it, uh, at, at a time in our culture, we were able to you know, use whatever drugs that was out there was available. But the government sort of didn't know how to get it off the street. So they ran a story. Black man gets high on cocaine and fights cops. And people's like, so we got to get rid of drugs. People are like, fuck that. Get rid of our drugs. Get bigger guns. Give cops more jurisdiction. Finally, they run a story. Black man gets high on cocaine, rapes, and kills Caucasian woman. That's when the Harrison Act, because, well, we don't want that. But because of that Harrison Act with the jurisdiction of a cop, that plays into a little bit of what we're dealing with today. Hmm. Because it was sort of set that way at a time where it was commonplace to see slaves. It was commonplace to see blacks as second or third class citizens. So, and it's not to incite anything. It's not to make you feel anything angry. It's just to 
it's just a peering into someone's genesis to see where we are today so that you can understand to or try to have the compassion for all of all of us who live here in this country because like i said it's it's the best in the world and beyond i remember a friend mentioned to me i was watching planet earth and he said there's a companion of some type which uh i really want to see called i think it's humans of earth and it actually profiles different civilizations different cultures around the world and it shows you have humans have adapted you know mongolians using falcons for hunting and all of this and whatnot but the um I, yeah i totally agree with you i think that you know if a culture is a set of beliefs and behaviors you have to in a way be taken on that sensory experience yeah. to develop the compassion yeah. you don't get it through text alone yeah. necessarily uh, if you could have a billboard anywhere uh what would it say uh, man it would constantly change it would be those new Ooh, billboards. That's a sneaky answer. I like it. It would, ha- it would be the bo- billboard chant. <laughs> Ball out, dog. <laughs> Have a great time. Go to church. Love somebody. Teach somebody. Get angry a little bit. It would just change, you know, because, you know, these guys know me. I'm all about having, and at the end of the last one, be have as much fun as you can. Because in a blink of an eye, We'll all be gone. A hundred years compared to infinity is nothing. I talk to my sister all the time. Why? She'd be like, oh, what's wrong? I said, girl, you better get, you better start having some fun. We're going to be gone in a minute. You're going to look back and say, like, shit, I should have been laughing. And now I'm dead. <laughs> so, yeah, my billboard would change constantly because I, I think we all change. And so, you said get angry a little bit. And, yeah. it's, it, and I remember I was given this advice by a guy named Poe Bronson, a writer, yeah. many, many years ago. Uh, I asked him at an event. I was sitting in the crowd. And I said, what do you do when you get writer's block? And he said, I write about what makes me angry. Yeah. And uh, if, you ta- if you were teaching a ninth grade class, yeah. mixed race, mixed gender, yeah. What would you what would you teach that class about? Like what would what would you teach? What what do you think the most important things, skills or otherwise that you could teach ninth graders might be? Well, like I said, it would have to be different tiered. Yeah. If it's a ninth grader of today, I would teach him as much as you can interact with actual humans. Uh, you know, the toughest thing in the world is like looking at my daughter and we're in Paris and they're Gen- generation thumbs. Yeah, they're on their they're on their they're on their cell phones. So I said, as much as you can interact with people, because people, it's the best interaction because there's all types. <clears throat> there's discretion when it comes to people. Like, there's no discretion when it comes to thumbs and what you can say on the internet. And that's why you get drugged down by it. Because it doesn't take anything if there, if it's an anonymous person and they say you're ugly and you're this and you're that and you're this. There's no discretion there. So they can sort of get the venom off. I said, when you're, if we're, if we're in a surrounding, I may feel something about something, but I won't say it because I, I don't want to hurt somebody's feelings. I, I don't want to have them hurt my feelings. So that's the one thing, interact with people. The second thing is interact with people from all over the world because you become narrow when you're just all about my block and just being about your block in today's world is going to hurt us because people don't understand global. We don't understand global market. We don't understand global things that how does something in the Middle East affect me in North Dakota? Mm -hmm. 
because of the way we're set up like this. So it's like you have to get the education. I would bypass. Well, I, no, I wouldn't bypass it. Get the education of people all the world. And then the last, well, the last couple of things would be history. Know your history. Know why we're why we're here. Why this, especially when it comes to 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 rules and legislation and things like that. Know why. Uh, why we vote, why we don't vote. Uh, if you think about it, this wonderful country runs on just like a human brain. We only use a little bit of it when it comes to the voting market. You got to vote. Get out there and be active in that. A lot of times we just, hey, man, whoever's the president is the president, whoever's this way. So so that. And then uh, um, the last part that I would teach is, last two things, hustle. Teach your hustle. Your hustle muscle is the but. Hustle muscle is the most important thing. Uh, when you hustle and, and you go get it, a lot of times that alleviates your problems. Mm-hmm. When you don't hustle or you leave it to chance, when you leave things to chance and you didn't give it all that day, now you start to argue or wonder about things. Bills, fuck, I got to get that done. Oh, my relationship is out of that. But if you hustle, for one, it's going to take up a lot of, more of your time. So you don't have time to to concentrate on just the worrying, the worrying. If I put the work in, I got my check. I put it in and your check can be, doesn't have to be monetary. It could be anything. It could be, I put the work in at the charity and this happened because of the charity, but whatever it is, put that hard work in. And now you could see things coming to fruition. And that takes 70% of your worrying away Mm -hmm. because you did give it your all. And then, uh, the last part of it is re- reflect, sit still for a minute. Cause when you're t- working, 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 I got this, I got this, that, that, that will strain you as well. So you got to be able to decompress. You just got to be able to chill, whatever it is that you chill with. If it's your homies, your friends, whatever, like, take time out to be like, you know what? I, I, if, if, if it's out of my hands, it's out of my hands. I'll get a better crack at it tomorrow. Colin Powell says something incredible. He said, I always feel like in the morning, I got a brand new chance. And I'm paraphrasing. In the morning, he said, I, I love getting in the mor- to the morning because it's a new opportunity. But really take that time for yourself. You know, relax, chill, whatever it is that you believe in. If it's God, Buddha, Allah, Hindu, all of them, whatever it is to get you on, on, that, on that okay you know, uh, I did what I was supposed to do. Let me relax now. And then tomorrow or the next day, get another another start. What is, uh, what is the first 60 minutes of your day look like? Or what, do you have any morning routines that are important to you? Morning routines? I, I wake up. I, uh, I text the people that I dig and love. What, uh, what do you say? I just send them encouraging. Like, you know, there's a few, you know, people that just you know really mean a lot to me want to let them know i'm thinking about them the whole night and then uh uh it varies man sometimes i'll be like okay i I put some work in so i put in eight days so maybe these two days i could chill uh get a little i do the uh just on the physical part i get my uh i get my 50 pull-ups in (laughs) 100 sit-ups you know maybe 100 uh maybe 100 crunches and it's easy I used to not be able to do it. My boy Tyron turned. How many sets for the 50 pull-ups? For the 50? So I do 15 first, 15 pull-ups. This is what it is. I do 15 pull-ups, 50 push-ups, 100 sit-ups, 
Then I go back and I do 15 different oh, chin. grip. Yeah. So that'll get me to 30. Another 50 push-ups. That gets me to 100 push-ups. I'm done with the push-ups. And then I do 10 and 10 back to the, to the first grip. And you don't have to do it every single day. You can do it every other day. Uh, and then what you notice is the pull-up bar. And Tyron kept telling me this. Well, we I got a homie, Tyron. He played Kane in Minnesota Society. And he, I kept wondering, how is he always in shape? He says, man, I'm trying to tell you, the pull-up bar is the everything. So uh, so that. And then, uh, um, and then just, you know, make the calls on what I need to get done and make sure I'm, you know, in the right you know, position and you drink coffee. Get the kid. I don't drink coffee. I don't drink coffee. Is have you? I have you never? Drink, had, oh, you to, stopped. I had to stop having stimulants. That's, there that's was you, some uh, that's you and me. earlier in my career. I was, I was all about the stimulant. <laughs> <laughs> so at a certain point, I had to ixnay on the yeah, caffeine okay. yeah, yeah i've been i've been cutting that out as well yeah, it's not it. good for me people are like oh, aren't you worried about depressants alcohol i'm like no 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 stimulants that's what i need to be yeah worried because because what i tell people all the time to drink coffee after a while you you, you keep you keep hitting that same muscle you know that yeah. in, in your brain to where you I, I know people right now who could drink four cups of coffee and go to sleep yeah i used to be that person yeah and so it's like my my and one of my boys loves uh uh uh, what is the Red Bull? Red Bull. And then he won't understand why some days he'll just be like this. Yeah. So I had to stop. And it was tough because I had to have coffee every day. And I drank like double espressos. You know, I was like, I had to have the up. Yeah. But now I know how to go get it inside of my, you know, I know how to go get it inside. Last last question here is, um, I'm going to ask what advice you would give to yourself. Three different ages, 20, 30, and 40. Um, so what advice would you give to your 20-year-old self? Man, put the condom on. <laughs> shit stop playing around <laughs> important advice <laughs> 20 man put that on buddy and not the fishnet one either put the real one on okay uh, anything else for 20 or should we move to 30 20 20s I had my daughter at 26 so the advice I would give me was like calm down you know it was like calm down and and just you know make sure you're paying attention to your daughter and to the daughter's mom 20s was tough because i just got to la i was just you know man the whole world was opening up so i'm like man i'm you know i'm trying to do all of it and while i was like calm down and and luckily it was 26 so moving into 30 i was uh on my way to calming, if that makes sense. It does make sense. So then you hit 30. 30. What advice would you give your 30-year-old self? Uh, it's going to go fast. <laughs> In what way? It's going to go fast. The time is going to go fast. So just make sure that you, uh, you start now planning for your future. And not only is it going to go fast, but don't spend all your money. Don't buy the 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 jacket that's twelve thousand dollars. You know, relax. You know, just just you relax it because it it's good. And forty is gonna come so fast, and you don't think that it is, right. but it's gonna come so fast. And would you say that because you would want your thirty year old self to pay attention to the present moment, or do long term no, thinking? No, do long term. When you're thirty, you got a kid, and you're in my business, and in any business. 
all businesses are gonna especially when when you when when you make my business is about me though so i have to be careful in my decisions socially uh and and plan for the future it's not gonna be i remember uh uh doing my television show and it went five years went fast and i would tell the people on my television show it's gonna go fast man and if you finish at 35 but you live till 70 you know so you have to really think about the future a long game yeah and then 40 before zero wow 40 there there're going to be tough decisions that you have to make when it comes to business cuz in your 40 when you're 40 in my business the window is closing on certain things so you have to be able to open those windows to other things. And some of the people that you've gone to, to to battle with till you're 40 may not be the ones that you will battle and do business with towards 50. And take a little bit of your uh, personal feelings out of it because I'm very personal. Uh, meaning like I would stay with someone even if I feel that they're not up to par business wise, but you know, we have history, take a little bit of the personal out of it, still remain friends if you can with that person, because now it's really pending like 50 about to be here. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, you know, and, uh, I would tell my 40 year old self grow up in your mind, but not in your body necessarily. Mm. Meaning stay young in your body, but certain parts of your life, you have to grow up and be, be grown about things because now you got another kid, your other child is, you know, 20, she's 21 now, which is just, you know, this past year. So, but she was, you know, 13, 14 if, if, when I was 40. But now you got to start living. Uh, you would always live your life 100% for you. But now that you have your kids and they're a certain age, it's got to be 30 to 40% you, 60 to 70% what you're going to leave for them and how you're going to leave them. Because like I said, it's, it's flying and that's it. Jamie, so much fun. I really appreciate taking the time. And uh, where can people find what you're up to? Find you online, learn. You can find me at I am Jamie Fox on my Periscope. Am I right? Am I saying this right? You know, I got these young cats telling me what to do. And then I am Jamie Fox on Twitter also. I am Jamie Fox on Twitter. And I'm doing better on Twitter. I'm trying to do better. And <laughs> on Twitter, you and, uh the old fella trying to. The latest album? The latest album is called Hollywood Story of a Dozen Roses. It's out. I don't care how you get it. You can download it, bootleg it, steal it from a friend. I don't care. I just want you to I just want you to hear the music. The song that's out right now is uh, I'm supposed to be in love by now. I'm supposed to be in love by now. It's been so long for me, I don't know how Been drowning in the sea of broken vows But I'm supposed to be in love by now I've been chasing my dream, now I'm chasing you Running hard but my legs feel weak I done played every part, I done played a fool Write the movie, I'll be your lead I'm supposed to be in love by now 
you stole my heart to take a bow in love by now. So make sure you get that. In <laughs> uh, love by now is out. It's a song that my daughter made me. She sort of made me do. She's like, listen, stop with the club stuff. Stop with, and that's my, my oldest daughter's like funny. She said, stop with the club joints. Stop. You're trying to be too young. Uh, like even, she'd even like, I had on some shoes one day that she thought was just, I had too young of a shoe. <laughs> She's like, dad, what is that on your feet? I said, what you, they, they the new style, baby. <laughs> they the, the Giuseppe's. You know, it's this new style. I had a zipper on and a buckle and my name engraved. And she was like, stop it. She said, Dad, you have old feet. I said, what does it mean? You have old feet. Like you have, you have feet for marching, like a civil rights. You have a civil rights feet. <laughs> so, uh, but she said, do a song that we know that is from you. And, and it's true. She says, I'm supposed to be in love by now. And so, uh, so that and uh, jumping out of the window, uh, and uh, we just shot the In Love By Now video with George Lopez is the priest. I get stood up at the altar. George Lopez is the priest. Nicole Scherzinger. Uh, and we all know her from the Pussycat Dolls, but also her solo career and, and everything. She plays my love interest, which is great because she's a good friend. And so we were able to like really get into some like, uh, you know, they don't do old school videos anymore. Like this actually has a bit of a story. My man Tank is in it. And then all of my friends, my daughter's in it. My little daughter's in it. And uh, my mom and dad is in it, and, you know, so it's uh, it's kind of cool. I was um, jamming to "Babies in Love." Yeah, that's the type of music I listen yeah. to this before I'm when I'm headed somewhere to to write, sit down, do some creative work. Yeah, man, "Babies in Love." Solid. Babies on top. I think Justin Bieber was supposed to do that song first, and we were lucky enough to get it. But uh, "Babies in Love," Kid Ink is on there, so you know, got some good stuff going. And then uh, later on. Uh, Sleepless Nights will be out at some point, and then uh, we'll start work on the uh, Mike Tyson uh, bio, and uh, and that's it. And then the the stand up comedy is coming because, like I said, I got a lot of stuff that you know I got to get off uh, get off my chest. And okay. that's it. Since you brought up Mike, what what would Mike say if you were here right now? Well, I'm gonna say it like this because now that I'm about to do the, the movie, to do the Mike Tyson impersonation would be a little disservice. What I would say is, is that I met Mike when I was 21 years old. I went on stage and I was doing my joke and I was getting in my Mike Tyson joke and I went into it and no one laughed because Mike was in the audience. <laughs> a guy was in the audience with Mike and said, yo, Mike is in here, motherfucker. I was like, oh man. The black girls in the front was like, what you gonna do, Jamie? You gonna tell your jokes? You scared of Mike Tyson? This is when Mike Tyson was knocking people out for nothing. I did, And then the guy yells out, Mike said, do the joke. And that shit better be funny. I was like, oh, shit. So I do the joke. It's a standing ovation. I come off stage and Mike goes, there he is. I want to talk to you. You're so funny. Come come hang out with me. You're a funny motherfucker. Grab the, come on, get in the car with me. And we take off. And I started hanging out with Mike Tyson at 21 years old. It was the most incredible thing in the world. Mike was bigger than Michael Jackson at that time. He was biggest. just, he was the biggest person, biggest star in the world. Mike would be in a club, see a girl and say, hi, how are you? Like BMWs? They're like, huh? Do you like BMWs? You like cars? Yeah. He would go open up the BMW dealership. They buy, he'll buy a car for a girl. That's how dope he was. And then all of his boys would go to all the different cities and pick up the cars that he bought for girls and say, yo, come on, get the keys back. You know, he's playing. So it was great to see, it was great to see him during that time. Then it was tough to see him when he went through what he went through. And then when we finally decided to do this movie, this is the Mike Tyson that I think people really 
be able to grasp is that when we show Mike Tyson older, and I call Mike and I said, Mike, how are you? I'll pray this to Allah, my brother, I'm happy. How are you? I said, I'm good, Mike. You know, what's up? What's going on? I'm just happy. I'm happy because I don't have any money anymore, so I'm happy. It's like, Mike, what does that mean? He said, no, it's just all the vultures that were around me the whole time. It was always after my money, so I don't have any money, so nobody wants anything from me, so I'm just so happy. And if you notice, his speaking voice, like what I told you with Bill Cosby, is completely different from when he's on stage, when he's getting ready to fight. So he was like, I'm just so happy. And I could tell, I said, Mike, that's the person we need to tell. That's the story. We always see the person who rises to the mountaintop, but we don't see the other side of the mountain and all the jagged edges and all the things, and 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 you're about to slip off of that mountain. So uh, Terry Winter, who wrote, you know, uh, Wolf of Wall Street, uh, Boardwalk Empire, and uh, Martin Scorsese, who's going to direct it, who hasn't directed a film about boxing since Raging Bull. So fingers crossed if it all goes together, we'll be able to see Mike, Tyson in a different way and we'll be able to transform uh, to where I want to be so good that it's Mike Tyson that I look so much like him and when I walk into his house his kids would acknowledge me as a father Um, and then I want to be able to sit back and reflect and here's what I'm trying to do with, with a career is establish characters in Living Color it was Wanda hey for real though I'll rock your world then it was Willie Beeman any given Sunday. My name is Willie. Willie Beeman. I keep the ladies screaming. Then it's Ray Charles. Oh, no, it's uh, Bundini Brown from Ali. Muhammad Ali is a prophet. How you going to be Godson? Soon as you come out the garage, you'll be number two. So Bundini Brown. And then it's, eh, yeah. well, I got a woman way over town. It's good to me. Then it's Ray Charles. And then it's a jingle. You know they love him very well. Django. So the Django experience, you know, working with Quentin Tarantino, which was mind-blowing uh, to be able to go in and read for that. And I didn't know about that part. I thought Will Smith was going to do it. I was like, woo, Will Smith and Quentin Tarantino. This is going to be incredible. It didn't work out that way. I meet with uh, Quentin Tarantino. I told him I understand the script. And I said, not only that, I have my own horse. And so I ended up riding my own horse in uh, in Django. And I knew that that was going to be another character that's going to change the game. And uh, uh, so they'll look at that. So they'll say Django. And then hopefully if everything goes right, Mike Tyson will sit with those characters so that you'll be able to, after a while, look at a, at a, at a career where you transformed into a character. People know it. And we're moved by it, and and hopefully, uh, um, if it all works out, it'll it'll be a great it'll be a great opportunity to look back and see, like, wow, man, look at the things that you were able to do uh, in America. Well, it's an incredible canon already, and um, my brother gave me Mike Tyson's autobiography for wow. Christmas last year, and man. I sat down and I read it because when I was a kid. I would watch on the grainy VHS yeah. Mike Tyson's greatest hits yeah, over and man. over and oh, over. Oh. And you'd see his reception in Japan. He was the biggest star he on the face of the planet. Place planet but you read the autobiography and there are layers upon layers. So a lot. A, lot. And a guy who just wanted to be in love, just wanted to, just, 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 you know, it was more simple than we thought it would. Yeah. And uh, I can't wait to see it. I hope it comes together. I hope so. Jamie, you are the... Bruh. 
consummate performer oh, man, and entertainer. So please keep creating. Oh, man, this has you. been uh, such a, such a gift. Uh, thank you for your time. Thank you, buddy. And uh, for everybody listening, you can find all the show notes, links to everything at fourhourworkweek.com forward slash podcast. Uh, you can just search my name and Jamie's and it'll probably pop right up. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is Tim Ferriss and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show. I am extremely excited to have a fellow geek in arms, Maria Popova, on the line with me. Maria, how are you today? Very well. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. And I appreciate your coaching on the last name. I wasn't sure if it was Popova or Popova. I have friends who, for instance, Naval Ravikant, who's a friend. It's actually novel, but Americans can't really pull that off, so he goes for Naval. So hmm. I appreciate the the coaching. And I, I yeah, as a, as a country of immigrants, we have a surprisingly hard time getting people's original names right, right? Oh, absolutely. It's uh, you know just the sort of anglicizing of of such a crisol, uh, like a a melting pot of different cultures, and you know at at the same time, I think it's a reflection of where I spend a lot of time, uh, which is reading, and. Mm. There are so many words, I've embarrassed myself on many occasions, that I've read dozens or even hundreds of times, especially in scientific literature, that I've never heard pronounced. <laughs> so. Oh, yeah. I call this reader syndrome. As somebody who spends the majority of her waking hours reading, you run into that a lot, especially with um, sort of cultural icons, last names, first names that are spelled differently than, very differently than they're pronounced. It's kind of tragic comic when you actually find out how they're pronounced. No, exactly. Or it can be a real revelation. I remember when I was uh, uh, a young kid, I couldn't hit, let's say, democracy or aristocracy. I could only say, because, and I'd also read it, uh, you know, democracy, aristocracy, for whatever reason, I couldn't get the emphasis right. Uh, but coming back to the, the reading and someone who spends most of their waking hours reading, mm. uh, if if someone asks you, and I'm sure occasionally it happens, you know, what do you do? For those people listening who may not be familiar uh, with you, but we'll start with the cocktail question. When someone asks you, <laughs> what do you do? How do you answer that? Well, I've answered it differently over the years, in part because I think inhabiting our own identity is kind of a perpetual process. But right now, I would say I read and I write in that order. And in between, I do some thinking and I think about how to live a meaningful life, basically. And if someone then were to go online, find your work, end up at brain pickings, and they're like, oh, this is quite interesting. And they kind of looked over their shoulder because they happen to be doing it on their iPhone at the party. And they're like, what is brain pickings? How would you describe, how do you typically describe that? It's just the record of that thinking, my personal subjective private thinking that takes place between my reading and takes and, and the writing and takes form in writing. A collection of very interesting things, and sometimes you know how I've got to sort of simply put it to folks. And brain pickings, for those people wondering, is one of the very few sites that I end up on constantly. And uh, when people ask me, what blogs do you read? I, I, I'm embarrassed, in some cases, kind of humiliated to answer that I don't go really to many blogs consistently. Um, and I think part of the reason is so many of them are feel compelled 
to put out very, very timely of the moment material that expires within a few hours. And Mm -hmm. I don't like the feeling of uh, keeping up with the Joneses when the Joneses are just sort of churning out content. And I remember Kathy Sierra at one, at one point told me that you should focus on just in time information, not just in case information. Uh, And Mm. which I thought was very astute and really sort of profound, but there are, there are two sites that come to mind that I end up on quite a lot. Brain Pickings is one, uh, and Sam Harris's blog yeah. is another. Uh, and I saw your your review of his latest book, Waking well, Up. Well, not a review. I, not a I review. Don't, I, I don't review books. I apologize. <laughs> okay, no, this is no. So this is this an is, annotated well, reading, if there, you will. <laughs> okay, so an annotated reading of, uh, and I, I definitely want to dig into that annotated reading of Waking Up, which I found really, uh, really. Uh, impactful for me in a lot of ways. It, it put words to a lot of vague sort of feelings or observations that I had for a very long time. Uh, talking about reviews. So I, I polled a number of my friends and my readers about different questions they would love to ask you. And a, a close friend of mine, Chris Saka, uh, he, he came back with sort of what percentage of New York Times bestsellers can be attributed to your coverage. And I'd be curious to hear you answer that. And then there's sort of a follow up, but you've, you've built this incredible powerhouse of, uh, an an outlet for your, whether it's creative musings or observations, and it has a a huge influence on what people read. So if, if you were to sort of think of that, how would you answer that question? Well, first of all, you're very kind to put it that way as is Chris, but I, I think one big caveat to all of that is that the majority of books that I read and write about are very old, out of print, uh, things that are not competing for New York Times bestseller. In fact, I don't even know if I ever really, I mean, perhaps, um, I don't know if the books that I read have any overlap in the Venn diagram of things with the New York Times bestsellers. Uh, But I suspect that the reason Chris asked that question is actually that I met him through his wife, who collaborated with Wendy McNaughton, the illustrator, whose work I love, and I love Wendy, on a book about wine. And, and that book ended up, I, and I wrote about it uh, because it's lovely and sort of profound and um, challenges our existing ideas about sort of sensor experience. And I like things that, that take something very superficial and find something deeper and something unusual in it. Uh, but in any case, so I wrote about that book and that particular piece on green pickings uh, seemed to do pretty well. And I think perhaps that mm, warped <laughs> Chris's idea of, of how much contemporary books I really sort of am interested in. Right. Um, but, but I would say that's a, a minority. Right. And for those people wondering, it's the essential scratch and sniff guide to becoming a wine expert, yes. which was written along with, and the illustrations are, are wonderful. Uh, the Richard Betts is the sommelier who was part of that. And at one point I met with him because I wanted to try to uh, deconstruct the master sommelier test. And he said, I can show you how to do it. And it was just the pared down, sort of hacked, if you will, version still of passing the master sommelier test was so intimidating that I sort of put it on ice indefinitely. But at some point, Richard, we will talk again and, uh, and, and, and form a game plan. The, so the, the opposite, of course, of sort of putting out this material that expires as soon as it's out on the vine is, uh, putting out what I think you do very often, and that is 
sort of timeless, timely and timeless, I've heard you call it, material where you're sort of pulling from old sources or older sources, uh, doing pattern recognition to pull from other areas to talk about, say, a, a theme or, or, or something that still affects people. And, uh, I was, I was doing research for this interview. And, uh, you know, we, we met briefly in New York at an event and I've, I've been a longtime fan of your work. And so I thought to myself, like, you know, how much, how much digging do I really need to do? And good God, you have such an absolute canon of work out there. It is astonishing. I mean, it is really... You're very kind. It's just the volume of time, really. It's been, you know, I've been doing this for eight years coming up. Actually, exactly a month from today, it'll be eight years. So it's just the accumulation, you know. (laughs) And so I was, I was, I was, I'm fascinated by routine and schedule. And, uh, you know, I'm reading from, of course, not, not the always accurate, but generally a good place to start Wikipedia. And, uh, it says that brain pickings takes you know, 400 plus hours of work per month, hundreds of pieces of content per day, 12 to 15 books per week that you're reading. Uh, how do you, ch- and I, I'm, I know I'm asking a handful of questions that you've been asked before, but uh, sometimes the answer is change uh, and evolve. They uh, always do. And yeah. which is why I, I actually don't do interviews very frequently because I find that they sort of, mm, tend to kind of cast us as the static thing that just stays there, some sort of reference point while we're really just a fluid process and we're constantly evolving. But in any case. No, definitely. So so, so the question that you've, I'm sure, been asked many times, but I'll ask again, is how do you choose the books? How do you find slash choose the books that you read? This is a huge problem for me because my, my appetite for reading outstrips the time that I have. And so I end up actually, uh, unfortunately, sometimes finding myself uh, anxious because of the number of books I've taken on at any given point in time. So I'd be curious how you sort of vet the books that you read. Well, I guess it goes back to that question of, well, let me backtrack and just say that I write about a very wide array of disciplines and eras and sensibilities because that's what I think about. So anything from art and science to philosophy, psychology, history, design, poetry, you name it. But the common denominator for me is just this very simple question of does this illuminate some aspect, big or small, of that grand question that I think we all tussle with every day, which is how to live well, how to live a good, meaningful, fulfilling life. Whether that's, you know, Aristotle's views on happiness in government or beautiful art from 12th century Japan or, or Sam Harris's new book, anything. Got it. And the, I've, I've read you citing Kurt Vonnegut, uh, before. Uh, Kurt Vonnegut's one of my favorite writers of all time. I know. I heard your uh, semicolon quote. With the, <laughs> I think it was either the interview I did with Kevin Kelly or with Sam, but I actually have a counterpoint to the semicolon. Okay. No, no. Question, so the, but go on. <laughs> so I actually, uh, I actually, I, I brought up the semicolon quote partially to, as a sort of wink, wink, nod 
ribbing to a friend of mine uh, named John Romanello, who has a, a tattoo of a semicolon on his, I think it's his forearm. <laughs> uh, he loves love type nerd. <laughs> he loves semicolons. He also has a molecule of testosterone on the other arm. He's, he's a fascinating guy. But uh, the, the quote that I heard you cite that I, uh, I wanted to dig into a bit was Kurt Vonnegut saying, right to please just one person. And so my question to you is, when you write, uh, is that still the case? And if so, who are, who are you, who is that person that you are writing for? Hmm. It is very much the case. I still write for an audience of one, and that's myself. It's like I said, it's just a record of my thought process, my way of just trying to navigate my way through the world and understand my place in it, understand how we relate to one another, how different pieces of the world relate to each other and sort of create a pattern of, of meaning out of seemingly unrelated, meaningless information. And the sort of intersection of or transmutation of information into into wisdom, really, which is what learning to live is. It's about wisdom. Um, so I and, and it's interesting, too, because I, when I started brain pickings, like I said, almost eight years ago, it started very much as a private record of my own curiosity. And I shared it with seven coworkers that I had at the time, just as a little sort of email newsletter thing. Um, and now to think that there are about 7 million people, strangers reading it every month. That's amazing. It's kind of Congratulations, surreal. By the way. Thank you. But, and I'm not sort of number dropping for, for scale or anything <laughs> like that, but just to, to try to articulate how surreal it feels to me that I still feel like I'm writing for one person, one very sort of, you know, inward person. But there's also now the awareness that there are people looking on and interpreting and, and just relating to this pretty private act. And it's a strange thing to live with and in no way a, a bad thing. I'm not complaining about it, obviously, but it's just interesting to observe how, how one relates to oneself when being looked on by a few million people, you know? Definitely. And, uh, oh, there's so many, so many questions I want to ask you. We might have to do a part two at some point because I know uh, <laughs> we have some time constraints, but the, uh, oh, where to even begin? This is where my, I start fraying at the ends as an interviewer. So the, <clears throat> the, the, the first question would be, related to that, there's so much temptation to dumb things down or to go after kind of the tried and true BuzzFeed type headlines. Uh, mm. Do you ever contend with that temptation? And if, if so, how do you resist it? And I, and this is part of the, you know, how do you respond to the, the expectations of the crowd or the 7 million people looking on. And I feel this personally sometimes because I have a blog. It has uh, you know, certainly by no means the number of monthly readers that you have. I'm, you know, I'm somewhere between 1 and 2 million uh, uniques a month usually. Uh, oh, but congratulations. Thank you. But even at, that, even at that scale, there are times when I, I put out something that I feel is very, very important but on, on the dense side. And, and then it will, sometimes it takes off, but, but sometimes it doesn't. And, 
And there's a lot of temptation when, for instance, I know you use social media quite a bit, and we'll get to that, where I look at, say, the, the retweets of the favorites on something that's kind of dense, and then I'm like, oh, God, I should just do like the, the seven tricks you can, you can actually teach your cat, you know, and get 500,000 retweets. Um, is that something that, that, you're, that ever sort of crosses your mind, and do you ever feel that temptation? Well, you know, it's interesting because I think anybody who thinks in public, which is what writing is, which is even what art is, it's some sort of putting a piece of oneself out into the world. Anybody who does that struggles with this really irreconcilable kind of tug of war between wanting to really stay true to one's experience, you know, and being aware that as soon as it's out in the world, there is this notion of the other audience. And, you know, Oscar Wilde, he uh, very memorably said that um, a true artist takes no not notice, whatever, of the public and that the public are to him non-existent. And it's very easy to say, especially for somebody as Wilde, who was very prolific, very public, almost performative in his public presence, it's very easy to call this out as a kind of hypocrisy and say, well, you can't possibly not care about the audience given you make your living through it and <laughs> sort of perform to it, right? But I, I think that's a pretty cynical interpretation. I, I think rather than hypocrisy, it's just this very human struggle to be seen and to be understood, which is why all art comes to be, because one human being wants to put something into the world and to be understood for what he or she stands for and who he or she is. And so with that lens, I do think it's hard to say, well, you know, I don't care about what happens to it out there, even though I write for myself and think for myself. The awareness of the, the other really does change things. But I think Perhaps Werner Herzog put it best. I, I just finished reading this kind of 600-page um, interview with him, essentially. It's a conversation that um, a journalist named Paul Cronin had with him over the course of 30 years. And in one passage, um, Herzog says something like, you know, it's always been important for me to um, have my films reach an audience. I don't necessarily need to hear what those audience reactions are just as long as they're out there, that they're touching, that the films are touching people in some way. And I feel very similarly. So with that in mind, I guess to answer your question rather circuitously, I, I don't feel, quote unquote, tempted to make listicles or to make anything that I feel compromises my experience of what I stand for. And in part, I think the beauty of the web is that it's a self-perfecting organism. But for as long as it's an ad-supported medium, the motive will be to perfect the commercial interest, to perfect the art of the BuzzFeed listicle, the endless slideshow, the infinitely paginated article, <laughs> and not to perfect the human spirit yeah. of the reader or the writer, which is really what I'm interested in. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I think it's a, a very virtuous goal. Um, I, um, I, you know, I, I really admire your site and obviously the newsletter and all these other aspects of it <clears throat> uh, for a lot of reasons. Uh, one of them is, uh, well, I, I feel a very sort of kindred 
spirit with a lot of the decisions it seems you have made. So for instance, I mean, not doing the, the slideshows to rack up page views for some type of CPM advertising, that stuff drives me insane. So if it drives me insane, I assume it drives my readers insane. So I'm not going to do it. Or like you said, that's so wonderful that you do that. Because I think so much of the cultural crap that is out there, not just on the internet, just in general, comes from people who fail to understand that they should be making the kind of stuff they want to exist. So if you're a writer, write the things you want to read. If you're an artist, paint the things you want to paint, you want to see painted. And I, I think the commercial aspect is really warping that. And I really, one thing I really admire about your work in all of its permutations from your books to, you know, this podcast, the site, everything is that there's just this sort of sense that you just want this to exist. It doesn't exist for any other reason than you want it to exist. And I think that's wonderful. Thank you. I, uh, that means a lot to me. And I, uh, you know, coming back to the, the right to please just one person, it's, uh, you know, I, 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 I think that it's, it's related to that. So in a way it's, you know, put the things out into the world that you would want to consume yourself or experience yourself. Number one. Um, secondly, just for those people who, who haven't, uh, heard this anecdote when I was writing the four hour work week is my first book. I've, I still to this day find writing very challenging and I wish I could say it's gotten easier over time, but for whatever reason, it <laughs> seems not to have, uh, the, in the case of the four hour work week, I, you know, came out of undergrad at Princeton and, uh, many, you know, many years have passed obviously. But when I wrote the first few chapters, it was really stilted and pompous and kind of Ivy league, you know, where I was trying to use $10 words where a 10 cent word would suffice and be a lot cleaner. So I threw out the first few chapters that I drafted and this was a major kind of panic attack moment. I was on deadline and, uh, I remember I was in Argentina at the time. Uh, and then I went the other way and I said, no, 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 I have to be loose. I have to be funny. And so I wrote a few chapters that were completely slapstick ridiculous. I mean, they, it sounded like three stooges put on paper. And (laughs) so I had to throw out those few chapters. And of course I'm doubling down on my anxiety at this point and, uh, decided at one point that I was just going to have a little bit of yerba mate tea, two glasses of wine and no more than two glasses of Malbec and sit down and start to write. What is that? Uh, Malbec is just this wonderful varietal in South America, uh, best known in Argentina, but there are actually some really nice uh, Malbec wines in Chile. Mm. They were, uh, as I understand it, it was viewed almost as a garbage grape in Europe, but it was brought by the Italians to Buenos Aires and has developed this worldwide uh, fame because of its cultivation in Argentina. So there's, there's a lot of sort of, there's a lot of metaphor there that I also like, but drank two glasses of wine, sat down and literally opened up an, e- a, a, an email client and started typing the four hour work week as if I were writing it to two of my closest friends. Uh, one was, uh, an investment banker trapped in his own job and he felt like he couldn't leave because his lifestyle was swelling to meet his income. Mm. And then the other was an entrepreneur sort of trapped in a company of his own making. And so these two very specific guys of mine, I started to write with just enough alcohol to, <laughs> to sort of take the edge off. And that's how, uh, you know, I was writing in that case to please just two people. Uh, but that's, mm. that's the only way I could make it work. Uh, the, uh, your schedule. So I've, I, I've read of your schedule, uh, but I'd, I'd love to hear the, the current iteration of that. It, it seems like you, you've had a fairly 
you have a fairly regimented schedule, which would make sense if you're putting the number of, of hours into reading and writing that you do. So what is what is your current day look like? Well, I'll answer this with a caveat. The one thing I have struggled with or tried to solve for myself in the last few years, couple of years maybe, is this sort of really delicate balance between productivity and presence and especially in a culture that seems to measure our worth or merit or our value through our efficiency and our earnings and our ability to perform certain tasks as opposed to just the fulfillment we feel in our own lives and and the the presence that we take in in the day-to-day. And that's something that's become more and more apparent to me. So I'm a little bit reluctant to discuss routine as some sort of holy grail of creative process because it's just really, it's a crutch. I mean, routines and rituals help us not feel like this overwhelming messiness of just day-to-day life would consume us. It's a control mechanism, but that's not all there is. And if anything, it should be in the service of something greater, which is being present with one's own life. So with that in mind, my day is very predictable. Um, I get up in the morning, I meditate for between 15 to 25 minutes before I do anything else. What time do you wake up, typically? Exactly eight hours after I've gone to bed, so it varies. Okay. Um, I'm a huge proponent of sleep. I think um, I when I write, because what, or when I, I guess, try to think, what I do is essentially make associations between seemingly unrelated ideas and concepts, and in order for that to happen, you know, those associative chains need to be firing. And when I am sleep deprived, I feel like I don't have full access to my own brain, um, which is certainly I'm not unique in that in any way. There's research showing that our reflexes are severely hindered by lack of sleep. We're almost as drunk if, if we sleep less than half the amount of time we normally need to function. And I think <laughs> ours is a culture where we, where we, um, where our ability to get by on very little sleep as a kind of badge honor, badge of honor that bespeaks work ethic or toughness or whatever it is, but really it's a total profound failure of priorities and, and of self-respect. And I try to sort of enact that in my own life by being very disciplined about my sleep, at least as disciplined as about as I am about my work, because the latter is a product of the capacities you know, cultivated by the former. Um, so in any case, so I get up eight hours after I um, have gone to bed, I meditate, um, I go to the gym where I do most of my um, longer form reading. Uh, I get back home, I have breakfast and I start writing. I usually write between two and three articles a day and one of them tends to be longer. And when I write, I need uninterrupted time. So I try to get the longer one done earlier on in the day when I feel much more alert. Um, so I don't look at email or any anything really external to the the material I'm, I'm dealing with, which does require quite a bit of research usually. So it's not like I can cut myself off from the internet or from other books, but uh, I don't have people disruptions, I guess. So anything social. Um, and then I take a a short break. I'm a believer in sort of pacing, um, creating a sort of rhythm where you do very intense focused work for an extended period and then you take a short break and then 
cycle back, you know? Um, and then I, I deal with any sort of admin stuff like emails and just taking care of errands and whatnot. And I resume writing and I write my other article or articles through the evening. I try to have, um, some private time, um, just later in the day, either with friends or with my partner or just, you know, time that is unburdened by <laughs> deliberate thought, although you can never unburden yourself from thought in general. And then usually later at night, I either do some more reading or some more writing or a combination of the two. Got it. And so a number of follow-up questions. What type of meditation do you practice currently? Just guided Vipassana, very, very basic. Um, there's a woman named Tara Brock who, um, she's a mindfulness practitioner. How do you spell her last name? B-R-A-C-H. Got it. Um, she's based out of DC and she, um, was trained as a cognitive psychologist, then did decades of Buddhist training and, and lived in an ashram. And now she teaches mindfulness, but with a very secular lens. So, um, she records her classes and she has a podcast, which is how I, um, came to know her and every week she does a one hour lecture and sort of the philosophies and cognitive behavioral, you know, wisdom of the ages. And then she does a guided meditation. Um, so I, I use her meditations and she has changed my life perhaps more profoundly than anybody <laughs> in my life. So I wow. highly, highly recommend her. Um, Tara Brock. Brock. Yes. And all her, her podcast is free. Um, she has two books out, too. Um, she's really wonderful. Very awesome. generous person. I will have to check that out. And uh, so you're listening, then you have earbuds in uh, when you're, or you're, listen, you're listening to audio while you meditate. Yes. Got it. And it's interestingly, I mean, she, she puts one out every week, but I've been using the exact same one from the summer of 2010. It's just one that I like and feel familiar with and it sort of helps me get into the rhythm so every day i listen to the exact summer 2010 how does that start how would people recognize it how does the audio i think the title is it sounds cheesy but it is not cheesy i think it's called smile meditation uh and i'm sure she has repeated it in various forms through the years in other recordings it just happens to be the one that i you know, have on and mm-hmm. on my broken 3G iPhone without any internet or cell service, which I just use as an iPod and <laughs> that's on it. <laughs> awesome. That's a great answer. Um, God, I love, I love digging into the specifics. So when you go to the gym then uh, to work out, are you still using an elliptical for that or are, yes. are you? You are. Yes. Okay. I do sprints, high intensity intervals on the elliptical. And are you for cardio? And I do a lot of um, weights and body weight stuff too. You do. All right. But <laughs> when you're reading, is that on the elliptical? Yes. And what type of uh, device, if any, are you using for that reading? Well, I prefer electronic, so I use the Kindle app on the iPad or any PDF viewer because I read a lot of archival stuff, but. The challenge, of course, is that because I read so many older books that are out of print, let alone having digital versions, that's not always possible in case it's rarely possible unless I'm writing about something fairly new. And so in that case, I just go there with my big tome and my sticky notes and pens and Sharpies and various annotation analog devices, and I just do that. 
Cool. All right. So that, that leads perfectly into the next question, which is what does your note taking system look like? Um, and how do you take notes? So for instance, uh, you're really good at using, um, excerpts or quotations, poll quotes. And I found myself asking as I was reading this, like, how, how are you gathering all of this so that you can use it later? Um, so what does your note-taking system look like when you sit, in the case of digital and in the case of hard copy? Hmm. So with digital, um, it's very simple. I just highlight passages and I write myself little notes underneath each um, that are that have acronyms that I use frequently for certain topics or shorthand that I have developed for myself. Uh, but reading is really, or understanding really, which is what reading should be a conduit to is a form of pattern recognition. So when you read a whole book, you kind of walk away with certain takeaways that are thematically linked and they don't usually occur, you know, sequentially. So it's not like you walk away with one insight from the first chapter, one insight from the second chapter. It's just sort of this, pattern of the writer's thoughts that 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 permeate the entire narrative of the book and so especially as you if you read as a writer so somebody who not only needs to walk away with that but ideally wants to record what those patterns and themes are that sort of reading is very different and so what I end up doing with analog books in particular and it's I've sort of hacked some systems of doing it electronically but they're imperfect is at, on the very last page of each, each book, which is blank usually, uh, right before the end cover, I create a, a, an alternate index. So I basically list out, as I'm reading, the topics and ideas that, that seem to be important and recurring in that volume. And then next to each of them, I start listing out the page numbers where they occur. And on those pages, I've obviously highlighted the respective passage and I have a little sort of sticky tab on the side so I can find it. Uh, but it's basically uh, an index based not on keywords, which is what a standard book index is based on, but based on key ideas. And I use that then to sort of synthesize what those ideas are once I'm ready to write about the book. Okay, I have to geek out on this because I'm so excited now. Uh, so as it, as it turns out, with analog books, I do exactly, literally exactly the same thing. Uh, I usually start with the front inside cover, but I create my own index. And of course, they don't have to be in order. So you can sort of list yeah. them in any, in my particular case, in any, any order. Um, I also will have sort of uh, two... A couple of, of lines dedicated to pH, and pH just refers to phrasing. So if I find a turn of phrase or wording that I find really... Oh, I do that too. Oh, really? Okay. But I call it BL for beautiful language. Oh, that's so cool. Okay. <laughs> so there's that. And then I have, um, uh, you know, like Q or Q, if, I, if they're quotes. So for instance, many books will have... Uh, quotes attributed to other people or just header quotes uh, in some cases. And so I'll have, uh, you know, quotes, I'll just write that out and then colon, and then I'll, I'll list all the page numbers for that particular sort of category that I'm collecting in the case of quotes. Uh, so for when you're gathering this, you mentioned acronyms and uh, shorthand. So besides beautiful language, what are some of the other acronyms that you use? Oh, they wouldn't make sense. They're just very private. It's like too long to get into what they stand for. They're is just the, is completely there, my own system. Is there one other example that you just, just if you could um, indulge me? 
one that is, I guess, not so much about the contents of that passage as, as about its purpose is LJ, which is, I have a little sort of labor of love side project called Literary Jukebox, right? Sure. Pair. I've, I've seen it. It's, yeah, it's, it's awesome. Oh, thank you. But yeah, so I, I do these pairings of passages from literature with a thematically matched song. And so sometimes when, as I'm reading a book, I would come across a passage that I think would be great for that. And maybe a song comes to mind. And so I would put LJ next to it. But I want to go back to what you said about the external quotes, I guess, the author quoting another work. Mm -hmm. I think those are actually really important. And that goes back to your question about how I find what to read. And mm -hmm. I mark those types of things. So for the, for the annotations that are specific to that particular book, all of my sticky tab notes are on the side of the, of the pages. But when it, there's an external quote, something referencing another work, I put a tab at the very top with the letter F, which stands for find, if I am not mm. familiar with the, word, the work, or just no letter, if I just want to flag a quote from something else that I know of. And I think that's actually very important because the, the, the phenomenon itself, not my annotations of it, because literature is really, and I say this all the time, it is the original internet. So all of those references and citations and allusions even they're essentially hyperlinks that that author placed to another work um, and that way if you follow those you go into this magnificent rabbit hole where you start out with something that you're already enjoying and liking but follow these tangential references to other works that perhaps you would not have come across that way uh, I mean directly and and in a way it's a way to push oneself out of the filter bubble in a very incremental way. And I've often found amazing older books that were, you know, five or six hyperlink references removed from something I was reading, which led me to something else, which led me to something else, which led me to this great other thing. Um, so I think that's, that's kind of a, a beautiful practice. Yeah. It's uh, the, the serendipity of it is, uh, so beautiful when it works out and i'll 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 uh give a confession this is really embarrassing but uh you know since no one's listening uh <laughs> i came across seneca so seneca the younger mm -hmm. who's had uh, probably more impact on my life than any other writer uh originally because there i i I was perusing a, a number of anthologies on minimalism and simplicity, and Seneca kept on popping up, quote, Seneca, quote, Seneca. And because it was always one word, like Madonna, you know, <laughs> or, and this is going to be really embarrassing, or like Sitting Bull, I assumed that Seneca was a Native American elder of some type for probably a That's good... So lovely, actually. <laughs> I, I assumed he was a Native American elder for a, probably a good year or two before I realized he was a Roman. And I was like, man, Ferris, you got to do your homework, pal. Like, <laughs> you got to dig in. And then at that point is when I really sort of jumped off the cliff into all, uh, a lot of his writings, which I've, I still to this day revisit on an almost I, month I just uh, revisited um, his um, The Shortness of Life. Oh, so good. So which good. is perhaps the best manifesto, and I had, hate this modern word um, sort of buzzword, but I use it intentionally. So the best manifesto for our current struggle with this very 
notion of, you know, productivity versus presence and how much are we really mistaking the doing for the being, you know, and, and, and it's amazing that somebody wrote this millennia ago before there was internet, before there was the things we call distractions today. And, and yet he writes about the exact same things just in a different form. Yeah. The exact same things. And the way that, uh, if I'm trying to use Seneca as a gateway drug into philosophy, I, I, I won't use the P word first of all with most people because philosophy smacks of, I think it calls to mind for a lot of people, the sort of haughty, pompous, uh, college student in, um, uh, Goodwill hunting in the bar scene, who's like <laughs> reciting, you know, Shakespeare without giving uh, any type of, of see. Credit. I completely disagree. No, I no, actually, well, I, I agree with the notion that, that those are its connotations today, and people have a resistance. But I think that's all the more reason to use it heavily and to use it intelligently and to reclaim it and to get people to understand that philosophy, whatever form it takes, is the only way to figure out how to live. Yeah, Everything else yeah. that we take away from anything is a set of philosophies, essentially. I agree. No, I totally agree. So, but I usually, if I'm going to lead people there, I try to, to, to lure them, lure them in (laughs) with, with Seneca, because I think he's, he's very easy to read compared to a lot of say, at least the Stoics, uh, or, or, or that's actually not even fair compared to a lot of philosophers who, who have been translated from Greek, uh, most of his writing, I believe, was translated from Latin, which tends to be just an easier jump from English. So um, it's very easy to read. And I, what I tell people is, you know, start off with some of his letters, and you'll find that you could just as easily replace these Roman names like Lucilius and and, and uh, so on with like Bob and Jane, or you know, pick <laughs> your contemporary name if uh, of choice, and it, they're all as relevant now as they were then. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I'm going to come back to the sort of performance versus presence, which I think of oftentimes as the sort of achievement versus appreciation uh, mm-hmm. split mm-hmm. or balance, um, or maybe neither. But before we get there, I, I want to put a put a bow on the note taking with your electronic note taking. So you're using the Kindle app, you're taking highlights. Mm-hmm. Where do you go from there? Are there any other, what is, what is the sort of workflow look like from there? And are there any, any, uh, particular types of software or apps or anything like that that you use often? I mean, honestly, I feel like that problem has not been solved at all in any kind of practical way. So the way that I do it is basically a bunch of hacks using existing technologies, but I don't think, or perhaps I'm just unaware, but I don't think there's anybody designing tools today for people who do serious, heavy reading. There just isn't anything that I know. And so what I do is I highlight in the, in the Kindle app on the iPad. Um, and then, um, Amazon has this function that you can basically see your Kindle notes and highlights on the desktop, um, on your computer. I go to those, I copy them from that page and I paste them into an Evernote file. Um, to sort of just have all of all of my notes on a specific book in one place. But sometimes I would also um, take a screen grab of a specific iPad, Kindle app, Kindle page with my highlighted passage and then email that screen grab into my Evernote email because Evernote has, as you know, optical character recognition. So right. when I search within it, it's also going to search 
the text in that image. I don't have to wait until I finish the book and export all my notes. And, and also it's the, the formatting is kind of shitty on the, on the Kindle notes on the desktop where you can see all your notes. So if you copy them, they paste into Evernote with this really weird formatting. Mm -hmm. Uh, so it tabulates each next note indented to the right. So it's sort of this cascading, long cascading thing that shifts more and more to the right of the page. <laughs> that, oh, that's horrible. It's like an it's email awful. thread. It's like an email thread, except there's no actual hierarchy. These are all, you know, and so if you want to go fix it, you have to do it manually within Evernote. And, you know, I, I read, you know, on, on the Werner Herzog book, for example, which is 600 pages, I have thousands of notes. So imagine thousands of tabulations oh, until the last one is so narrow and long that, that it's just like unreadable. So, Hence my point about just there is no viable solution that I know. Got it. Okay, so let me just, because I, I, I this may or may not help. For me, it was a huge shift in how I manage Evernote. Because, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at this list of questions, uh, and I'm not reading entirely off, off, you know, on script, but I have a collection of questions in Evernote right now. And one, one of the things I realized about formatting and transposing things from, say, the you know my Kindle page. If you if you log into your your Amazon account through mm -hmm. Kindle.amazon.com, or um, copying and pasting from many different places, is going to I don't know if you've tried this, but edit and either paste and match style, or paste as plain text, and it tends to remove all of that headache. Um, I'd say nine times out of ten. So if you yeah, if, if, the problem with that, um, I did try that once, but. But when you remove the style, it makes all the metadata look the same as the text. So on every uh, highlighted passage, I also have right. my own notes. I see. Got it. Plus, plus, you know, Amazon's own thing that says, add note, read, read at this location, oh, delete notes. And so it, it all merges it and becomes just hideous. It's just impossible to read. God, you know, I wonder, I wonder what to do there. Yeah, I used to take notes and drop them into text wrangler which is used for coding a lot just to remove yeah. the formatting and then put it into evernote yeah i do but, that with coda <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's true though there, but there's there, got to be a solution and the thing is evernote i love evernote i've been using it for many years and i could probably not get through my day without it but it has an api which means somebody can build this you know and is true. there a way to like I even thought, I mean, I was at one point so desperate and so frustrated, which I think is the the duo that causes all innovation, you know, desperation <laughs> and frustration. Um, I, I thought maybe I should just save up some money and offer uh, like a scholarship or like a grant for a hackathon for somebody to solve this for me, yeah, you know? That's a great and idea. I'm still not, I mean, I, I'm still sort of contemplating that <laughs> mm. okay well we'll talk about that separately i think that's something that we we could absolutely explore and for all of you programmers coders out there please take a look this is actually not as rare an issue as you might expect one question for you on the kindle highlights uh because mm. i've run into this you mentioned the werner herzog book and having you know thousands of of highlights i've have you run into instances where you'll you'll read an entire book you're super impressed or not, but you, regardless, you have hundreds of highlights and you go to look at those highlights and you're restricted to only seeing. Oh yeah. The it first says like 
200 highlights, 81 available or something like that. Right. So how often does that happen to you? Because that's happened to me where I've taken so much time to meticulously highlight stuff and then I'm only able to see 25% and it's so infuriating. And I think it's a limitation that is determined by the publisher. Yes, it is. And so I'll tell you why it hasn't happened to me much. It happens to me occasionally, but that's a DRM thing, a digital for listeners who don't like acronyms, digital rights management uh, thing that has that is fairly new. So that is the uh, case with more recently published books. Right. But if you read, you know, the digitized version of, say, you know, Alan Watts that was published originally 40 years ago, there's no such problem unless the publisher now is like reclaiming rights and doing a whole new thing. But because I read so much less mm-hmm. out of sort of newly published material, I don't run into it often. But, you know, there is a way to very laboriously, you know, deal with it, which is you can still open that passage in your Kindle app on desktop. So Kindle yep. for Mac for me. And it will let you highlight and copy those passages <sighs> and paste them into your Evernote in between the missing parts. But it's obviously completely done, not conducive. I have done <laughs> that. And it's so horrible because yeah. you, you also get the like excerpted from da, 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 like three lines mm-hmm, for mm-hmm. everyone. So just publishers, if you're listening to this, you are making it harder for people like Maria who have 7 million uniques per month to share your stuff. <laughs> so please up your threshold. Uh, do you have uh, anybody helping you with brain pickings or is it just you? Um, the actual reading and writing obviously is just me. But as of about 10 months ago, I have an assistant, Lisa, who's absolutely wonderful and she just helps me with admin stuff that has to do with my travel or email or scheduling things that I feel is weighing me down so much. I operate so much out of a sense of guilt for sort of letting people down or, and as you know, I'm sure when you get to a point where the demands are just incomparable with what you can even look at, then you kind of need to have help in order not to either go insane or, or live with a constant guilt over not addressing things. So, And was there a particular... Oh, and I also have uh, a copy editor, this wonderful older lady I hired to do my proofreading. Um, she's great. I am, that's all I can say. I think proofreading is really, really important, and I'm constantly embarrassed if I have a typo, which, you know, as you know, as a writer, you cannot proof your own work. It just, your brain just does not see the errors that were made in the first place, uh, or the majority of them. And so, and people are kind of merciless. They think somehow that a typo makes you lazy, or I don't even know. There's no kind of compassion for the humanity that produces something as human as a typo, right? right? Despite how mechanical the term itself seems, which is sort of ironic. But in any case, so yes, I have my Assistant for admin and my copy editor for just proofing. And what what platform is is uh, brain pickings uh, on at the moment? What is it? What's the the technology behind it? Is it I know that uh, I've heard you mention WordPress before. Is it on? Is it still on WordPress? Uh, it is on WordPress. I was going to make a joke on how, about how the technology is called Corpus Colossum, but uh, <laughs> 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 the actual technology is right. uh, yeah. <laughs> That was a very, very Sam Harris uh, friendly joke. Um, the uh, the 
So when you're working with, say, uh, your copy editor, uh, do you give your copy editor admin access to WordPress and she'll go in, proofread it, and then schedule or publish? What's the process? No, it's, it's a very, again, super sort of hacked together process, which is every night I email her the articles from the preview page on WordPress. I just copy that and paste it into a body email and I send it to her and then she sends me the corrections via email. Got it. I mean, like I said, she's not very, I would say, tech savvy. I mean, I'm sure she's a wonderful learner, so I'm sure she would totally learn how to do it if I gave her admin access. But between that and the fact that I write in HTML, so I really don't like the WYSIWYG. I, I right. hate it, actually. I think it's just easier to do it via email because then she can like highlight the word. And sometimes she would make suggestions that are more stylistic. And I... I would like to have the final say in those because very often I want to keep it the way that I have it because sure. that's just my voice. Um, so I find email works just fine. Got it. Okay. No, I'm, I'm always fascinated because I, I will use, well, when I was, when I was hosting WordPress elsewhere, I'm also in WordPress. I would use the share a draft plugin to share drafts with people. Uh, I'm, I'm now on WordPress VIP, which has a, it has a sharing function where people can leave feedback in a sidebar that runs alongside the article itself, which is pretty cool. Oh, that's cool. I should I should look into that. I think that's what I have too, the WordPress VIP, the WordPress host, yeah. the WordPress. Yeah. So I don't even know what the that function is. So I, I'm kind of I mean, for somebody who writes on the web, I'm I don't really yeah, I sometimes only learn about things through friends. <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah, that's that's how I learned about a lot of this stuff. And the the other option that I've used quite a lot is, and as much as I hate Word, and I really do, I love the track changes feature, and I just find it more user-friendly for a lot of folks than having them use something that's cloud-based, like uh, Google Docs, just because I operate so much offline to try to mm -hmm. get anything done. <laughs> and, uh, See, uh, yeah, I mean, that's what a lot of people suggest and what Kai, my proofreader, actually asked originally, but I do not own Microsoft products on principle and I just, I'm not going to just don't deal with it. <laughs> Got it. Okay. No, that makes sense. And your assistant, <clears throat> what was, what was the, the, def the sort of defining moment, the straw that broke the camel's back when you were like, you know what, like, what was the day where you're just like, fucking enough of this, like, I need to get somebody stat. I mean, what, when did you actually make the decision? <laughs> it wasn't so much that I made the decision as the decision was very um, strongly, lovingly, but strongly sort of pushed on me by my partner who one day said, you, you're using so much time on things that are just so menial and you should not and because I was really stressing to a point of just driving myself crazy and I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that I'm uh, always have been very independent I you know moved away from my parents house when I was 18 paid my way through school lived always by myself and I just had this Emerson like you know sense of <laughs> self-sufficiency and self-reliance that to a point of pathology where it was to my own detriment and the notion of outsourcing felt to me on some level um, almost like an admission of weakness. Sure. Yeah. It's 
it's ridiculous. To I think feel that's that true way. for a lot of people, though. Yeah, I know. And, and it's the strange thing, the disorienting thing is that I think we intellectually know that's not the case, that it's actually a lot of strength to be able to delegate and to sort of divvy up control according to a hierarchy of priorities. But on some sort of psycho-emotional level, it is just death to, to consider that you cannot do something on your own anymore. And of course, I mean, it's interesting in terms of how brain cooking has evolved, which has always been very organic. So the, the sort of, you know, eight year thing that has happened, it went from being a little newsletter that contained five links, no text, like five links to five things that I found very interesting. Um, and then it went to sort of five links with a little paragraph about each, about why this thing is interesting and important. And then it was, you know, not, not a little paragraph, but a little like one page piece. And then it became not one, not five things every Friday, but three things every day of the week, pretty long form in the thousands of words, you know, and I foolishly and naively thought that I could just have the same sort of operational framework, despite the (laughs) enormous swelling of, of just the volume of the writing. And that's, unreasonable. It's completely unreasonable. Um, so at one point last fall, as the sort of seventh birthday of brain pickings was approaching, my partner was just like, please like consider. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. How I, did, I, uh, how, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. I was just, I'm always curious to ask, how did you, how did you find this, the assistant that you ended up with? Uh, well, she's wonderful. She's a professional sort of personal assistant that's had this type of job for about 20 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's just a wonderfully warm and, and just generous person, but also has such doggedness about things and just work ethic. It's unbelievable. And you always have the sense that she's looking out for your best interest and in, in the most magnanimous kind of way towards you, but also the most warmly non no bullshit way outwardly towards the world demanding things from you and having this buffer it's really really great yeah and did uh was she how did you track her down how did the two of you get connected uh just a recommendation she's been working for um somebody who's a very trusted dear person um for a long time so now she works for both of us and did that person reach out to you? Did you reach out to her? I'm always curious about the, the specifics because the way that I found one of my first assistants and we worked together for many years was anytime I had a really fantastic interaction with someone's assistant, I would say, hey, I know this is off topic, but you've been awesome to deal with. Do you have you know, a twin brother, twin sister, somebody who does what you do? as well as you do it that you could recommend to me because I need some help. And I just did that over and over again. And eventually one of them said, well, actually I work for multiple clients so we could talk about it. And that's how we ended up working together. Uh, but what, what was the, Oh, the introduction was made by the person. So we, uh, I, I, I had met her, at least in my assistant, I'd met her just socially many times before. And so eventually when the time came for me to consider, um, like, she just like we set up a meeting we talked and she was really into it and she'd been reading brain pickings and uh um i asked made sure it wouldn't be too much on her plate because she's also i mean she's superwoman lisa's superwoman she is the mother of two kids one of whom um is now her first year in high school and the other one his first year in college 
So she has that on her plate too. And, uh, uh, but she's very, like I said, very dogged, very sort of dedicated. And she was like, I can do it. And uh, I'd like to do it. And I was like, great, let's roll. Onward. So with, uh, with your assistant, if you were to do an 80-20 analysis of to the eight, the you know the 20% of tasks that take up 80% of her time, what, what are the types, what would those look like? What is the vast majority of her time spent on? So, hmm, a lot of it is, I guess, coordinating travel and things, but I'm, I'm trying to really, I mean, I have this new-ish commitment to really not do any speaking at commercial conferences anymore but to speak to students because I think it's important and um what it takes out of me which is a lot speaking takes out a lot of me because I'm a writer and I also don't really recycle talks um I like to write something original and when it's a commercial conference it just doesn't add up for me what I get out of it because I usually donate my commissions due to the local public library and whatnot but with students it is worth my time if I dissuade even one journalism student from going into buzzworthy land, you know, after graduation, <laughs> um, that's worth it to me. And so even though I've scaled back on the speaking, speaking, I now am getting like all these college requests. And so that takes so much time, especially coordinating because a lot of them are organized by sort of student volunteers and they're kind of still learning what it means to, you know, schedules and deadlines and advance notice. And so Lisa is sort of wrangling that. And another big part, and I should also mention that the evolution of what I've been able to delegate has been, has sort of organically happened. Originally, I just really didn't know what to give her. I felt like I had to do all of it because I didn't know how to explain it to her to do. And But it's, she's a great learner, and I'm learning to delegate more. But another thing, because my site runs on donations, I want to. I, I sort of make an effort to send handwritten thank you cards to just, at this point, randomly picked donors every month. Um, and so I have her sort of export those names and emails for me and just give me like just prepare envelopes and all those types of things so that I could not spend too much time on the actual admin of the mailing. Mm-hmm. And do you operate, do you communicate exclusively via email or do you use uh, soft other types of software? Oh, email, email and text, email and text. Uh, so no project management software at this point, no sort of base camp or Asana or anything like that. No, I don't, I, that would make Which me feel fine. like I'm some sort of, commercial organization you know I'm, I still have so much resistance to the fact that I even have to deal with these things right. uh, no, back understand. to the Oscar Wilde hypocrisy about audience <laughs> or the humanity I guess of the tension uh, what's um, a couple of a couple of quick ones so the first is when you when you lift do you tend to have the same workout what, do, what is your what is your weightlifting look like it's changed a lot in the last year and a half I've prioritize body weight stuff heavily, no pun intended. Mm-hmm. That was actually total inadvertent. This is how language, how we think in language. <laughs> That's so funny. Uh, but uh, I, I prioritize body weight stuff. And so I do pull-ups, push-ups, and that sort of thing. Um, it also depends on where I do my workout. My gym has, my building has a sort of gym, like a you know one of those residential gyms. Uh, but I also have a membership at a larger, uh, probably I think the best gym in New York 
I love it. Uh, but I'm only there a few days a week. So it just depends on where I do it and what I do. And if, if you had to pick one, besides the elliptical, if you had to pick one body weight exercise to hold you over, let's say you're traveling for a few months, you can only pick one body weight exercise, what would it be? Well, it would be pull-up, but you can't always find a place to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, so I just do usually elevated push-ups. So my feet on a bench or bed or some like a step or something and just push-ups. Cool. A great uh, little hack for pulling motions while traveling is putting your feet on a chair and going underneath a table to do basically inverted mm -hmm. bent rows. Uh, you know what's actually very helpful for traveling is... Uh, plyometrics. Plyometrics and uh, TRX is actually quite handy. There's a, mm -hmm. a system... I, I, for some reason, it's just not my thing. Can't get into it. Yeah. yeah I, it doesn't... The thing is, here's the thing. So if I am forced by circumstances to do a workout that is not my preference, I, I very much like to be able to do something else while doing it, such as listening to podcasts, which is what I do while, while I do weights at the gym anyway. Mm -hmm. um, and there are certain types of movements that it's just a hassle to have the headphones and it's just like not great. So I actually carry a um, weighted jump rope with me when I travel in case there's nowhere to do sprints, which is my plan B for cardio, and then plan C is just jumping, skipping rope. Yeah. You're intense. I love it. The, uh, I remember the, the uh, you know, I wanted to, every time I meet, and this is so silly, but I was so obsessed with uh, Bulgarian Olympic weightlifters for a very long time that whenever I meet Bulgarians or people who in, at any point have lived in Bulgaria, I want to talk about Olympic weightlifting, but it's not. I know seem... nothing about them. I know exactly the weight stuff when I was living in Bulgaria. So. <laughs> no, exactly. It's kind of like, uh, uh, you know, like, oh, you're from Switzerland. Let me talk to you about the guys in the Ricola commercial. They're like, no, we don't talk about that stuff. Um, or worse yet, is that guy your cousin? Yeah, right. <laughs> right. You must know. Like, no, I actually don't. Like, I know I went to X, Y, and Z college, but there are 5,000 people <laughs> per year. You know, it doesn't, doesn't always work out. You mentioned the donations. I want to talk about the site. So mm -hmm. uh, it appears, and I, and I dug around a bit, but it appears that you have no comments or dates on your posts. Is that accurate? I don't have comments. I do have dates. They're in the URL. The, so the dates oh, they're in the URL, but they're not yeah. in the post. They're in the URL structure, but they're not in the yeah. displayed post itself. Yeah. So the reason for that is because I, I do think we live in an enormously news fetishistic culture. And the reason I do what I do is precisely to decondition that because we think that if something is not news and it's not at the top of the search results or the top of the feed, because all feeds are reverse chronology, and you know there's an implicit hierarchy of importance to that, we think if it's not at the top, it's not important. And you know, you would understand, you know, writing about Seneca, mm -hmm. it really doesn't matter what the date stamp on it is. But yeah, I think right. that this culture conditions us so much. People, when they see a date stamp, they sort of think, oh, this was like two years old. Oh, and it's really, you know, 2000 years old. <laughs> uh, but because a lot of academics actually use brain pickings to reference. So I constantly get things. This is another thing that Lisa deals with, like requests from textbooks for citations or, you know, whatnot. And those people actually need the dates. So I've made it so that if you actually look, it's kind of easy to, to see, or I can just tell them when they write and ask me what the date is, look in the URL. But it's just not one of those immediate things that slaps you over the head like a newspaper front page, you know? 
Definitely. I, I actually have done the same thing for, um, quite a few years. And if you, if you go to any permalinks, if you go, if you get linked to any of my posts directly on the blog, the date is there, mm-hmm. uh, in the URL, but also, uh, at the very bottom of the post after the related links. So for the same reason, because there's so mm-hmm. much bias against older material. And I think some of my older stuff is, I mean, it depends on the person, obviously, in the context, but uh, it's it's an easy way to have a high sort of abandonment rate is to to timestamp. The comments, did you ever have comments or have you never had comments? I did originally. And then I was like, you know what? I kind of feel like Herzog does. I don't really care to hear. I mean, I do write for me. I'm, I'm very gladdened by people who are in any way moved or touched. Uh, but the comments I was getting... I, I was I've been fortunate enough not to really get any, you know, trolling or anything like that. But they were kind of vacant or people trying to plug their own thing or spam and it was taking more of my time than it was worth. And so instead I've made my contact information very easily accessible. So if someone has something of substance and urgency to say, which is I think the two things that <laughs> compel people to reach out, uh, they'll do it via email behind their own name and not anonymously. And then, I mean, I do get a lot of, a lot of emails from readers um, and those are valuable, you know, but I don't really care for comments. Now, the flip side of that is that now that I have the Facebook page having uh, something mysterious happened with the Bring Pickens Facebook page last fall where it just started growing so fast. I have no idea why. You know, I was going to ask you about that because if you, if you look at, say, that your Twitter follower growth versus your Facebook growth, the Facebook just kind of took off. Yeah, it was in about October of last year and it went from 250,000 to now, I think, I don't know. I Two think point it's like something million. Close to three maybe. So more than tenfold in less than a year. I have no idea why I've done nothing differently. I'm very, I don't really enjoy Facebook. I do it reluctantly because I know I get a lot of emails from readers um, elsewhere in the world who actually use Facebook as their primary thing. And they're such sweet notes, you know, people who just are stimulated and inspired and moved in a way that perhaps they wouldn't be if they hadn't read that piece about some random thing that I read and wrote about. And I think it would be selfish of me to just sort of disable Facebook because I hate it. But the the point of it is that you can't, you have comments on there. And Lisa, my assistant, actually, that's something I delegated her a few months ago, uh, just to completely deal with them. I can't, I can't deal with them. I can't, and, and not for any other reason that I have complete allergy to people pronouncing their so-called opinions without having actually digested or even engaged with the thing. So people would comment on the basis of like a thumbnail image or the title, make really outrageously inaccurate comments, clearly not having read the piece. And this kind of snap reaction thing that I think social media to a large extent perpetuate, I, I can't deal with it. It just it's like a psychic drain. Like I can't even explain it. Just, I I can't. So anyway, (laughs) so, so that would explain, that would answer one of my questions, which is in your header picture on, uh, Facebook, you have, this should be a cardinal rule of the internet end of being human. If you don't have the patience to read something, don't have the hubris to comment on it. I was gonna, (laughs) I was was gonna, I don't care if it sounds like bitchy or anything. The point, I mean, you know, it's interesting because I think a lot about, criticism and the notion of criticism and and why it's so hard for anybody and i i don't think 
that people have a hard time with criticism because another person disagrees with or dislikes what they're saying. They really have a hard time when they feel misunderstood, like the right. other person does not understand who they are or what they stand for in the world. And 99% of the time, and you actually touch on this in your conversation with Sam Harris, where you say that his ideas are not as controversial as people think when they don't actually understand what they are. Right. But the, 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 the main source of anguish is not being seen for who you are, not being understood. And this kind of reactive culture where people comment without taking the care to understand what you're expressing, who you are and what you stand for, it is so toxic. It is so toxic to readers, to writers, to us as a culture. And I just don't know how to get around it other than just having instructed Lisa to be just merciless about banning people and deleting comments that are just not, there's no humanity, there's no patience, there's no thinking in them. So, I mean, you know, anybody who writes online, I think feels similarly that this is kind of my home. And if Definitely. people come and be idiots in it, then they're not welcome there. So yeah, no, I, I actually use the exact same analogy. I say, look, I view my, especially on my blog, I view the comments as my living room. And if you come into my house for the first time and get raging drunk and like take your, you know, put your feet up on my table with your shoes on, <laughs> I'm, you're not going to be invited back. You're gone. You know. Um, so is is your assistant's job as it relates to Facebook then primarily calling the herd and just removing the the idiots or uh, does she have a, what are what are other instructions, if any? Are there things that she passes to you? Are there things that she responds to? No, I don't. I don't really care what people say. Again, to the point that if people have something of substance and urgency, they will reach out, and I'm then very happy to hear from actual humans and engage in a human dialogue, which I do. But I really care about you know the comments on Facebook. I just don't want them depressing me when I go on the page because I put my own things <laughs> sure. on there. You know, Lisa doesn't put the actual postings. And I also don't want them creating a culture that is antithetical to the very reason why I do what I do, which is a kind of faith in the human spirit. I mean, that's where I come from. I, I am a cautious one sometimes, but an optimist about the so-called human condition. And anybody who craps on that without having even given a chance to the thoughts that, that speak to, the, to, to those ideals, which is what my articles are a record of, then I will want them gone, you know? And so her instructions are just, you know, ban people who are offensive to others sort of in a vicious way as opposed to just having rational discourse of disagreement. Uh, ban people who are ignorant and, and have not read the thing and have some very scandalous or not even scandalous sort of, contrarian sensationalist take on it clearly not understanding the nuance because i mean a culture of news is i say often a culture without nuance and um yeah so that that's basically it it. help me stay sane when i look at them that's her that's her task just (laughs) not make me lose my mind over (laughs) just exasperation when people's impatience (laughs) no and i you know i really respect that because uh another reason that i read uh, brain pickings as opposed to other sites, and I feel comfortable going there, is that I feel it is sort of a stronghold of positivity and optimism uh, in, in a lot of respects. So, kudos. Thank uh, you. The email. 
Uh, mm. Actually, before we get to email, I've read that you schedule your Twitter and Facebook, which would make sense because you're prolific. Uh, if, if that if it's still the case, what do you use to schedule that social media? I use Buffer for um, uh, Twitter, and I use just my hands for Facebook. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but again, I mean, this goes back to the same inner struggle of I do want to be reading and writing for myself. So why do I have the compulsion to put so much of it out there? And I, I self-flagellate over that because on some level it does seem like a form of hypocrisy. But then I do think about the people that email me from India and Pakistan and South Africa and Korea and where, wherever that actually that's how they connect and I, I think if I'm putting in the amount of time that I do into into what I do, even if I do it for myself, I might as well just harness that time anyway if it benefits somebody else's journey, you know? And so I do it because of that, mostly. Definitely. And I, I think that while it's fine to write for yourself, if you if you keep the value of what you write to yourself when it could benefit a lot of other people, then I think that's actually it could be viewed as a selfish act, right? So the yeah, I think, yeah. I think yeah. that there's, particularly when you're curating in the way that you do and you're saving people thousands of hours of searching by distilling a lot of these concepts. Uh, well, I would I, argue that the benefit, the value is not even, I mean, what I do is kind of the antithesis of search. It's a discovery of things that ideally one would not have come across within the usual parameters of one's filter bubble, right? So mm-hmm. sort of a lot of the people that, that I hear from, for example, you know, just this week to, to use the Seneca example, actually just this week um, I heard from this guy who was an IT person uh, trained as a physicist, ended up doing IT and said the Seneca, the shortness of life piece really, really put everything in perspective. I've never really read philosophy, never been interested in it, never looked for it, but it just cut in the middle of what I'm struggling with right now in my own life, you know, and it's kind of, it gives you pause to hear that from people. Definitely. Agreed. Uh, on, uh, on email, the, uh, if you go to your contact page, you recommend emailcharter.org. And I'm very curious to hear if people actually follow the email charter, it, like what would you, in terms of the the email that you receive, um, do people actually pay attention to that and follow yeah, follow the yeah, rules? Yeah, they do, and I'm so grateful. And I mean, but the majority of them do. You know, uh, some people who reach out with the intention of self promoting. There, there's usually you know laziness to people who self promote for the sake thereof. You know, mm-hmm. so they don't they don't usually. Um, follow, but people who actually care to have a conversation and to engage are very um, courteous and very sort of mindful of what I've asked, except for publicists who are never. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, uh, I suppose uh, if they're flying on autopilot and just blasting out a template, dear blog, mm. dear blogger. <laughs> oh yeah, I love those. The dear blogger. Yeah. <laughs> yeah or the- you know what I get very often, which I think is actually hilarious. Uh, people who don't even bother to read the name of the site, so they address me, Dear Brian. <laughs> rain somehow becomes Brian. And, they, and, and, and this, the pinnacle of this was when last year, at one point, 
I opened my physical mailbox in my building, my home, and I found this bundle from the USPS, but like with an elastic band around it of, of mail for somebody named Brian Pickens, who lives in <laughs> Long Beach, CA, or used to, I guess. <laughs> And somehow that stuff got forwarded to me because I guess the guy either moved and the USPS like somehow looked things up. And I don't even know. It was such a, a sort of mystery and, and metaphor for what I deal with online. I was like, well, if USPS, <laughs> how can you ask a publicist not to? <laughs> so I used to have a company ages ago called Brain Quicken. And uh, I had, a, I got a telemarketing call one evening. I remember. And, uh, this guy goes, hi, uh, sorry if you're if I'm interrupting. Is this Brian? And I go, excuse me? And he goes, Brian? Brian Chicken? And I'm like, Brian Chicken. Brian Chicken. <laughs> uh, I was like, eh, no, and take me off your list. Goodbye. Uh, the, um, oh, God. So it, on, the, on, the, uh, on the email and pitching side of things, or just on the pitching side of things, how on earth do you deal with uh, not just cold inquiries, but how do you deal with writer friends or acquaintances who are writers that you don't want to be rude to who want you to read their books? How do you polite huh. decline that stuff? And maybe maybe you don't get a lot of it. I get a ton of it. And the fact of the matter is, like, not everyone is is able to put the time or effort into writing a good book. So inevitably, <laughs> if I get 10 books from f- decent or good friends, some of them are going to be terrible. Uh and I don't have the time necessarily or the inclination to read them all. How do you deal with that type of situation? Well, I guess you deal first and foremost by controlling not the outcome, but the the cause, which is your circle of friends and acquaintances. I'm very selective about the people I surround myself with. And I'm, I like to think friendly to pretty much everybody that I meet but my circle of actual friends is really close and really tight and people who are just, you know, when the sky crumbles, they're going to be there and we're there for each other. And so with that in mind, I think there is a certain boundary that you have to put up beforehand to, 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 I guess, manage social expectations in a way. Um, and so for those people, my friend friends, in large part, I mean, I should mention that the majority of my close friends, including my partner too, are people that I have met just through what I do. So there's already the self-selection of sensibility and ideals. And, you know, I I think we become a centripetal force for the kinds of people we want to be and surround ourselves with those types of people. William Gibson has a wonderful word for it. He calls it personal microculture. Mm -hmm. Uh, And even when you said early on the kinship of spirit, I think that's so important. So which is the long-winded way to say that when and if those inner circle people put a book out, it's a guarantee that I will like it because of who they are. And so then I'm more than happy to support it. I mean, the, the book that we started with the scratch and sniff guide to wine, Wendy, the illustrator is precisely that type of person, somebody who I met through what each of us does. And she's now one of my closest human beings, you know? And so of course I'm going to support her work, but not because I'm being um, nepotistic about it, but because that's the pre-requirement that I, and moved by her work and respect it and, and love it. And that's how we became friends. But outside of that inner circle, I don't, I think acquaintances know that there's no such expectation. And when I do get such requests, it's a matter of, well, 
did the person do their homework in knowing what I actually think and write about? Because very often, I'm sure you get that too, you get pitched things that are just so outside of what you do, in which case I don't even feel compelled to respond because if they didn't put in the time to understand what I'm interested in, why should I put in the time to explain to them why this is not a fit? Yeah, that's a great way to put it. I need to embrace that more. I, th- I think that's an area where I carry a lot of guilt. Guilt, uh, yeah. yeah. you know. Yeah. But guilt, it's interesting because guilt is kind of the flip side of prestige and they're both horrible reasons to do things. So often we would agree as humans, not just you and me, just anybody would agree to do things because they sound prestigious in some, in some way, you know? Mm-hmm. And and equally avoid things because of the guilt thing or do things because of the guilt thing. But sort of this whole Buddhist thing about (laughs) aversion of, you know, avoidance and aversion and making decisions based out of either fear, which is what guilt is. It's the fear of disappointing somebody and then feeling disappointed in yourself or out of um, sort of grasping for, you know, approval or acclaim, which is what doing things for prestige is. I think either of those are really bad reasons to do things. And yet they, they motivate us a lot, or, or at least they sort of lurk in the back of the mind constantly. And it, it is a real practice to try to decondition that. Definitely. No, I like, I like, I like what you said about uh, why put in the effort to explain why it's not a fit if they haven't done the homework to determine if it is a fit. I think that's a great way to put it. Um, I want to ask, uh, and I, I know we don't have too much time left, so hopefully sometime, someday, we can do a, a follow-up part two. I think that'd be a blast. I can, I'll, br- I'll bring some mall back if you actually <laughs> drink wine, so yeah, I, can, I can introduce you to it firsthand. But the, the donations, I'm very fascinated by uh, the, the ad-free donation approach. And uh, just, to, just to, to keep it simple, if you had to choose... Um, say 20% of the options you're currently offering, which would you choose and why? In other words, you have people What do you who, mean by the options? No, no, so I'll, I'll explain, or two or three. So, you, so people can make one-time offer. They can make a, a one-time single contribution. Uh, they can, uh, let me simplify that question, or they can become a member and donate, you know, seven, three, 10, or $25 a month. Um, what I'm trying to ask without being improprietous or uh, making you feel uncomfortable is what is working best? Uh, when you're asking people for donations, you know, assuming that it's working, uh, if, if someone were to offer one or two options instead of four options per month or the, the single contribution versus the membership or the membership versus the single contribution, what would your advice be to people? Mm. Well, I will preface this with the caveat that I use PayPal for donations and I can't for the life of me figure out how to actually like look at the data and get any sort of real reason. All of it is so antiquated, their export tools and such. And mm-hmm. I'm not that interested. I would siphon, you know, days into looking into it. So I can tell you sort of my intuitive interpretation sure. of it. Yeah, great. Um, and by the way, the only reason these options are as they are also is also the reason why I don't have an ad supported site, which is, I just asked myself, what would I like to read as a reader? Well, I would like an ad free site. And how would I like to support that? Well, I'd like to have a few options, you know, just because I don't want to, you know, be sort of confined to something. And so I just, just pulled it out of the hat, basically, with these tiers. And I've just left them on since I put them on, they seem to work, you know, whatever. And, um, 
originally, my sense was that the one-time donations accounted for much more, but I'd never actually analyzed it because I think I, I see the alerts that come from PayPal, and sometimes people would send really large one-time donations, like things that are totally humbling and enormously generous. And I think those kind of, you, you kind of weigh them somehow as more um, than the cumulative sum of the smaller donations. So I thought the one-timers were much more. But then, and I'm pretty sure that must have been the case earlier on. Right. Uh, but, and I've had the recurring ones, I've had the one-time donations for as long as I can remember, for as long as I basically needed to start making money for the site because, by the way, running the site cost me several times my rent, like all the costs associated with it. It's like crazy. So at one point, I got to a point where I had to make money. I said, I don't want to do ads. I don't believe in that. I'll have just donations. And I didn't even think of recurring ones at the time. That was years ago. And then um, my friend Max Linsky, who runs longform.org, we were having tea and he said, well, why didn't you like push the recurring ones more? Because it's working really great for us. And at that point, I had the option, but it was buried somewhere on my like donation about page or something. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, okay. So I put it in the sidebar. And that was, I want to say, maybe 2011. Um, and it started accruing slowly. And so this past year, when I did my taxes, I very reluctantly went to deal with all the PayPal tools to get the data out, basically. And I actually had Lisa pull all the Excels and whatnot. And then I did the tally to see. And to my surprise, the recurring ones, which are very small individual amounts, actually were two to one ratio to the one-time donation. Wow. And I don't know at what point it tipped over. Mm-hmm. But I think because of the scale and just how many people have these tiny, tiny donations that they contribute every month. I mean, that's such an act of commitment. And it's so generous, you know, that they add up. And I, my guess is that as time goes on, because the recurring ones have only been available for the last like two and a half, three years, whatever, they would become by far the larger sort of uh, financial support compared to the single ones. Sure. No, that makes sense. Uh, the If you had to choose, and of course this is hypothetical, but if you had to choose two of the amounts to leave in the drop down, so you have $7, Dollars a month, three dollars, ten dollars, twenty-five. If you had to choose two of those to leave up, which would you choose? Oh, I have no idea. Probably just the mathematical, logical choice—the two middle ones, so the three and ten. Okay. Cool. No, just very curious about this kind of thing. I think uh, I think you've approached the blog in a very authentic way with the content, and I can't emphasize strong strongly enough what you just said, which is you, you base what you do on what you would like or dislike as a reader in the case of you know something with, with text. It doesn't have to be super complicated. It doesn't have to be doing tons of analytics for months before you make a decision. Just ask yourself, would this annoy the shit out of me? If so, don't do it. <laughs> would mm-hmm. I love this? If yeah. so, try it out. And, but, uh, and every decision too has been that way. And actually, in the last couple of years, I've been getting really annoyed. I mean, brain pickings is a pretty sort of lo-fi site, as you can see it, just very super simple, basic. But I've been getting annoyed that 
it doesn't load very well on my iPhone when I want to look at something or pull something up to reference or iPad. And my friend Scott Belsky, who runs Behance, he's a great guy. And he's been sort of a very generous donor, just supporting. And, you know, and one time uh, he pulls me aside. That was like, I think in February or March. And he's like, you know how much I love brain pickings, but like the site sucks. Like he didn't say it in that way, but he was super sweet about it. And then he offered to connect me with this guy that he knew uh, that I could hire to do a responsive design. And I always have this resistance to making these sort of technological improvements because then I feel like I don't want to be a media company. Like I don't want to be a Buzzfeed, but at the end of the day, I, as a reader uh, and as a sort of engager with that experience was being annoyed by it myself. So now I'm in the middle of <laughs> releasing like a simple responsive site that is actually easy to read on your phone. And so, yeah, it's, it's <laughs> despair and so frustration prevail yeah. again <laughs> in innovation. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so, so worth it. It took me, let's see, it only took me three, oh God, seven years to get a, uh, a mobile version of the site ready to go, which I just launched a month or two ago. So better late than never, I suppose. Uh, well, Maria, this has been a blast. I, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, if, if someone were to want to explore brain pickings, uh, what, what are a few articles you might suggest that they start with? Uh, or a few posts? Well, since we talked about it so much the Seneca piece about the shortness of life it's mm -hmm. a fairly short piece um there's a piece I did a couple of years ago which was less about it was not about a specific book just sort of things that I've been thinking about for a long time this disconnect between purpose and prestige and why we do things and I um I forget what it's called I think it's called how to do what you love or some other how to find your purpose and do what you love. And it was sort of an assemblage of thoughts on that from various sources as well as my own. And perhaps most of all, a piece that I wrote last fall as on the seventh, seventh birthday really at the site, uh, which was about seven things that I learned in those seven years of reading, writing and, and living. Which is a great article. And I didn't want to replicate everything in here. So I, I sort of uh, bobbed and weaved around some of these subjects a little bit, but just to reiterate something that you mentioned, and that's doing nothing for prestige or status or money or approval alone. And I just want to quote Paul Graham here, which you included, which is prestige is like a powerful magnet that warps even your beliefs about what you enjoy. It causes you to work not on what you like, but what you'd like to like, mm. which I think is so astute. And um, in closing, is there any... And also, yeah. I should just interject and say any Alan Watts piece, uh, not because my writing about it is so great or it's not coming from a place of check me out it's coming from a place of check him out alan watts has changed my life i've written about him quite a bit um, so i highly recommend any of those articles cool all right brainpickings.org is the site guys check it out um maria any parting advice for for this uh episode this portion of our conversation uh, before we before we check out any advice to the people listening out there thoughts parting comments no advice per se, just I guess a comment and, and, a, and a hope, which is that, that, you know, thank you so much, not just for having me, but for having this show and for doing everything that you do. And I really hope we have more people who operate out of such a place of just, I guess, for lack of a better word, idealism and, and conviction. And um, yeah, 
thank you for setting an example that way. Uh, well, that means a lot coming from you. And I think, I think you're a tremendous force for good out there in the world. So I hope people check out your work. I hope you continue to do what you're doing. I hope you continue to add repetitions to your pull-ups. And, <laughs> and uh, we, will, uh, we will talk again soon. Thank, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Tim. Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just one more thing before you take off, and that is Five Bullet Friday. Would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little fun before the weekend? Between one and a half and two million people subscribe to my free newsletter, my super short newsletter called Five Bullet Friday. Easy to sign up, easy to cancel. It is basically a half page that I send out every Friday to share the coolest things I've found or discovered or have started exploring over that week. It's kind of like my diary of cool things. It often includes articles I'm reading, books I'm reading, albums perhaps, gadgets, gizmos, all sorts of tech tricks and so on that get sent to me by my friends, including a lot of podcast guests. And these strange esoteric things end up in my field and then I test them and then I share them with you. So if that sounds fun, again, it's very short, a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend, something to think about. If you'd like to try it out, just go to tim.blog slash Friday, type that into your browser, tim.blog slash Friday, drop in your email and you'll get the very next one. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by Cometeer, that's spelled C-O-M-E-T-E-E-R. Cometeer is hyper-fresh, expertly brewed, flash frozen coffee that produces an incredibly delicious cup. Now, I have to be honest, I was very skeptical of flash frozen coffee, and I thought, at face value, this is probably just a gimmick, yada, yada, yada. But, as you know, I am an avid coffee drinker. I talk about caffeine and coffee a lot on this show. And when it landed on my doorstep, when I first started testing it, I thought to myself, this is actually incredible. It is locked in at peak freshness, and you can sample coffee from some of the top roasters, not just in the US, but around the world. And I went in with one eyebrow raised, and I'm sure some of you have one raised right now, but the coffee is absolutely delicious. It's pretty incredible. And I'm able to avoid bitterness completely. Cometeer lets you prepare your coffee with no mess, no machines, no burning, no bitterness whatsoever. It's a fast and foolproof way to a truly delicious cup of specialty coffee. They source high-quality beans from the country's top roasters and some outside of the country. That includes Counterculture, Bird Rock, George Hell, Equator Coffees, which I used to have. I used to drive 45 minutes from my house in San Francisco to have Equator Coffee, just to give you an idea. And you can get it through Cometeer. Birch, Joe Coffee, Red Bay, Go Get Em Tiger, Clatch Onyx, Square Mile, Black and White, Intelligentsia, which was in the 4-Hour Chef as an example in Chicago, and uh, on and on. So you can get all sorts of coffee you wouldn't otherwise be able to get because it is frozen using their process. Their coffee is brewed using proprietary technology to pull out more flavor compounds and antioxidants. Then it's flash frozen at minus 321 degrees Fahrenheit to lock in the incredible flavor and freshness of the specialty brew. I already mentioned this, but it's worth reiterating. Cometeer ships to you in 100% recyclable capsules that you store in the freezer. And if you were to walk into my kitchen right now and look in the freezer, it is chock full of Cometeer coffee. Simply add hot water and you've got a game-changing cup of coffee lickety split. It's very fast. It's easily customizable in seconds for iced coffees, lattes, espresso martinis, and more. If you've never had an espresso martini, I recommend it. It's pretty 
game-changing. We'll cover that another time. Cometeer is also great to travel with when you need a cup and don't want to sacrifice quality. Their capsules are TSA approved. So order today at cometeer.com slash timtim and listeners of this podcast will receive $25 off of their first order. So visit cometeer.com slash timtim to learn more and get $25 off of your first order when you join the future of coffee with Cometeer. This episode is brought to you by Shopify, one of my absolute favorite companies, and they make some of my favorite products. Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide, and I've known the team since 2008 or 2009. But prior to that, I wish I had personally had Shopify in the early 2000s when I was running my own e-commerce business. I tell that story in the 4-Hour Workweek, but the tools then were absolutely atrocious, and I could only dream of a platform like Shopify. In fact, it was you guys, my dear readers, who introduced me to Shopify when I polled all of you about best e-commerce platforms around 2009, and they've only become better and better since. Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or getting ready for your IPO, Shopify is the only tool you need to start, run, and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. It doesn't matter if you're selling satin sheets from Shopify's in-person POS system or offering organic olive oil on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform. However you interact with your customers, you're covered. And once you've reached your audience, Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States. And Shopify is truly a global force as the e-commerce solution behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across more than 170 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way if you have questions. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. So check it out. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify. That's S-H-O-P-I-F-Y, shopify.com slash Tim. Go to shopify.com slash Tim to take your business to the next level today. One more time, all lowercase, shopify.com slash Tim.